Just in the dark manner, Assalamualaikum, everybody. Welcome to another amazing Saturday session, hopefully the uh, conclusion of Surah um, Al-Anam. Um, and I was telling Sheikh, please, um, because he was going back and looking at things that he had covered and had missed um, because he was rushing against our advice. <laughs> so I said, even if you need to take a fourth day, please take a fourth day because this is really meaningful and we will not cover these things again. Um, so, you know, um, I think the challenge of like really trying to internalize what we're learning, um, you know, is, is, is difficult. Um, it's always easy to look at other people or give advice, um, but you know, we've gone now 60 chapters in and um, you know, it's, it's a real challenge to stop and say, okay, what have you done to transform yourself? You know, it's easy to look at other people and see what they have or haven't done, um, or to criticize or to be, you know, irritated or whatever. But I think the real lesson from these halakas has to be turning inward and looking at yourself and seeing, okay, what is it that I am supposed to do, and what am I supposed to change about, you know, to, to elevate. Um, and you know, we are so blessed here to be in this community space. We have you know amazing people, um, as you know we've talked about before. Inshallah, people will, you know we'll have more people come up and give the introduction and all of that. Um, and you know, it's it's a it's a very special moment in time. And I'm often struck with um, you know even though life goes really really fast and we are doing a lot of things in a very short amount of time, you know, oftentimes it's very easy to take for granted the very specialness of the moment that you're in. Um, and, you know, I oftentimes sort of scarily think about what's going to happen when this project is over, you know, because I'm going to miss these gatherings, I'm going to miss this, this moment in time where I'm sharing something really beautiful and powerful um, with a lot of other people who share the passion as me. But, you know, as we now are learning in these halakas, you know, time is a, is a construct. It's, it moves very quickly. Um, and, you know, I, I often say, I, I can't believe that we're already in September. And, you know, it was not even um, a year ago, in September 2020, we had not even thought about Ohio. We had no idea that we would even be here a year from now. Um, and so I've said often to many people, you know, it's like, God plans, or you plan, but God plans. And here we are, you know, in, in Ohio um, when, a year ago, we just thought, well, we're going to be in LA till you know, God knows when. So it underscores again the idea of time, right, and how things, um, how human beings have this relationship with time, where you think that there's always time, there's always um, more time to do the things that you need to do, or change the things that you need to change, or um, you know, to achieve the things that you want to achieve. And I think one of the most important lessons when I sit down and, you know, as hard as it is and as uncomfortable as it is to sit and really stop and look at yourself and say, okay, what am I not doing? What am I doing? Um, I think this lesson about time is just so critical. Um, there are things from, you know, 20 years ago that I know um, I was weak in and I needed to change and develop. And I can honestly say, 20 years later, I don't think I'm much better at those things. Um, 20 years has passed, that's a very long time, but it feels like a blink of an eye. And it's gonna be a blink of an eye before another 20 years passes. 
Um, and it's so easy to get distracted in life and so easy to get even pulled into a beautiful situation like this where you're sharing a space with you know, people who similarly want to change and transform and grow um, and be part of a, a community. Um, but this community may not always be here, probably will not always be here. You know, Sheikh will not always be here. Um, what will happen when we reach the point where we finish now the halakas and you know, if, if Sheikh is not with us anymore? You know, these are things that um, are very easy to push off in your mind and say, well, I'll deal with it then, I'll think about it then. But that's, you know, these are, I think that's, that's the challenge that's before us in our, in our halakas. You know, it's like if you have someone standing right next to you with a gun ready to pull the trigger and saying, okay, you make a decision and you're, the immediacy of, your, of the choice you make, you know, that's going to affect how you, how you choose what you're going to do. And so, um, you know, as beautiful as this community is, um, you know, I think it's, it's like really important to internalize the idea that, okay, this opportunity is an opportunity for individual transformation. It doesn't really matter. I mean, it's, it, of course, community is so important. Your friends are so important. Your family is so important, all of that. But ultimately, when, it, when all is said and done, it's really you as an individual and what you have done and what you have before you with God. Um, and, you know, as long as you distract yourself and don't do the hard work or, or be courageous enough to look internally at yourself and say, what is it that I'm supposed to do um, and do it, you know, it's going to be just a blink of an eye before you're going to have to answer that question before God. You know, why didn't you do this when you were told 20 years ago that you should have changed this or done that or fixed that or improved in that way? And another way to think about it maybe is, you know, because these things are fearful, you know, I mean, it's, it's not fun to look at yourself and say, okay, this is something that I'm, I'm scared of or that I don't like or that is really too hard to change. But these are also the same things that kind of hold you back from flying, right, and elevating. And, you know, if there's, there's no more important reason to be here and to learn the Quran and to learn about God's message and how to improve yourself, then to ultimately transform and learn to fly and elevate. And so if the question before you is, what's holding me back from flying? Um, that's a really important question to answer and it's worth having a lot of courage um, to confront that. And I say this not for you guys, I say it for myself because I know myself I have things that are holding me back from flying, things that I have been distracting myself and putting off in 20 years. Um, and I feel like, okay, God allowed me to be here in this moment in time. And I think for, for my relationship with God, God is saying, okay, I'm watching. This is your chance to transform. Are you going to distract another 20 years or are you going to do it? Um, and it's not for you to tell other people to do it. You got to tell yourself because really ultimately we can only change ourselves We can't change other people um, and that's a really important lesson that um, you know to learn also so um, Note to myself. So just sharing that with everyone for whatever it's worth and um, Inshallah, I'm looking forward to an amazing session um, Maybe three of four maybe three of three. We will see Inshallah الحمد لله رب العالمين وسبحان الله العلي العظيم اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على محمد وعلى آله وأصحابه وتوب إحسان إلى يوم الدين اللهم اشرح لي صدري واستر لي أمري وحرر عقدة من لساني أفقر قولي يا رب العالمين okay so I am going to be taking us back to some of the ayat that we already covered um, 
but uh, something calls me to revisit these ayat again. As I'm sure you will recall that we now have uh, at least repeated in um, uh, in two halakhas that Surah Al-An'am starts with the distinction, the duality between light and layers of darkness. And the which will connect to a very critical concept as Allah al-Faliq, al-Faliq, the, 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 the creator who differentiates, distinguishes, literally the, the, uh, the divider between right and wrong, light and darkness, as we will see, inshallah. But anyway, so it starts out in this fashion and then methodically takes us to the basics of belief and the critical idea of Iman where you are anchored in gratitude, in hamd, as a, 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 a fundamental value in the relationship you have with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then it adds to this the awareness that Allah has decreed mercy upon Allah's self and that mercy itself so gratitude and mercy are building blocks in your relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then it adds further the awareness of the tendency for of human beings to attribute shuraka, associates and partners and as we said in our last two halakas that partners to Allah doesn't mean that you're an idol worshiper, but that your system of authority surrenders to things other than Allah, including class, social status, whatever uh, whatever values that end up obtaining your commitment and anchoring you to or, or serving for all practical purposes as what guides you or what uh, steers your behavior. And then we said that Surah Al-An'am then adds to this the critical concept of natural law 
and that there is not just a natural creation, not just laws of causation and causality, but that laws of ethics and morality that are encoded in the very existence that we live in. And as it started to unfold these natural laws to us, it will do so in typical Quranic style where it introduces an issue and then reminds you all over again that the entire existence you're in belongs, has an owner. It is not an existence in which you dwell um, freely with a sense of entitlement, but an existence that has, a, has an owner. And so will consistently remind you of the centrality of Allah to everything. But we said that the first value introduced as part of our natural awareness and natural existence occurs around Ayah 47, where, uh, where Allah puts center stage the concept of justice, and that Allah will always be on the side of justice. And as we said, this discourse, this Quranic discourse, gave rise to the whole field in Usul al-Fiqh about the rights of human being and the rights of God, and that in Usul, the rights of human beings take precedence over the right of God, rights of God, because of um, the centrality of justice to any Islamic ethical project. And then after that, it addressed the role of political expedience and the absolute rejection of the idea that in order to get ahead, it would be proper to exclude slaves or the poor or in any way negotiate the value of human beings as anchored in anything other than their belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then it went further and clearly set out the role of salam, the role of peace, and what the what that means, and as we said in our previous two halakas, the center, uh, central idea is to make safe, and that peace is the relationship of making safe. And then Allah warns us that unless you are anchored in these values, the threat that you confront 
is the threat of inner disintegration, tyranny, and the uh, the disintegration of spiritual truth that leads to all types of social maladies. Social maladies that are inconsistent with justice, with peace, with the type of equity that the Quran calls for and seeks. Okay, so because I felt somewhat rushed, I want to revisit, not in the same detail, but touch upon a number of things that we had already covered in the second halaqa, but I want to again touch upon them. So, Ayah 61, Allah will repeat twice in Surah Al-An'am, the phrase, هُوَ الْقَاهِرُ فَوْقَ عَبَادِهِ The هُوَ الْقَاهِرُ فَوْقَ عَبَادِهِ That expression that central to your Islamicity is to understand and internalize that it is not up to you to invent morality and ethics as you see fit. It is not up to you to say, well, we can do without justice, or we can do without equity, or we can do without peace. But it is up to the anchor of values, i.e., the owner of this creation. And that to accept as well that the way life is is something that you have to ultimately relegate to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because as we see, this plays a critical role in the ethic of non-compulsion that even the Prophet and Muslims are repeatedly told that if God would have willed, people would not disbelieve. And if God would have willed, people would not act in ways that are wrong and offensive, but that as a Muslim, you have to understand and accept the value of freedom of choice that 
Allah al-Qahiru fawqa ibadih, Allah who has the power of compulsion over human beings, has not relegated this power to, no, to anyone else. So al-Qahiru fawqa ibadih, which means literally, the one with compulsive power over God's creatures. But God has not made any other human being a qahir And this is a critical ethic for any notion of Islamic morality. It's a status reserved only for the divine and not even the Prophet Muhammad was given the status of al-qahir al-ibad, the, the one authorized to exercise any form of compulsion over people. Okay. And that your relationship with the heavens as you see in Ayah 61, that although you do not you do not see, if you're pious enough, you might feel. Some people might be able, but your relationship, your existence, is never singular. You are always surrounded by the celestial presence of Hafza, angels. And, and ultimately, the moment you will actually, the, the veil will be lifted and you will see that in fact, there are these celestial beings, these unseen beings that will come to receive your soul. Is it death? At moment of death, the veil is lifted, and you actually see what is coming to receive your soul. Okay. And we already covered the discourse in uh, 63 to 65, where Allah reminds us that our relationship to Allah cannot be a superficial and finicky relationship where we remember Allah when we are in need and tend to be oblivious to Allah's presence when we are not in need. And that the danger from drifting away from being anchored in a moral system set forth by the divine and, under, and drifting away from a sound relationship with Allah is, as I said last halakha, that as in 65, that you will become your own worst oppressors. As human beings, you will become Shia. 
وَيُضِيقُ بَعْضُكُمْ بَعْضَ Inflicting harm on one another. And as we said, that this can take the form of despotism, when you have a despotic ruler that arrests and torture people, that's a Shia, that where humans cause harm to humans. It could take the form of civil war. It could take the form of terrorism. It could take the form of common criminal behavior. The absence of safety, the absence of societies of repose, justice and tranquility is an indication of the absence of the divine. To say I have a Muslim society, but that society lacks justice, lacks peace, lacks tranquility, lacks safety, is a contradiction in terms. Then you do not have an Islamic society, if that's the case. Then the journey with morality continues. And as we said that This is in 68. Although the Quran is talking to an oppressed and persecuted people, but yet it tells them that if you see those if you see those who, the, word, the critical word here is Yahudu. And Yahudu to in those who engage in conversation or discussion that is disparaging, that is disrespectful. dispersion and disrespectful towards our ayat. So that could be the Quran itself. But dispersion and disrespectful towards the very idea, because the ayatullah is also creation, the very idea of the centrality of Allah to, to existence. So, now note here, the ethic is polite withdrawal. The ethic is not a compulsory ethic. You're not commanded to silence people. You're not commanded to fight with people. But that as a Muslim, you are asked to cleanse your space. If you have friends, if you have acquaintances, if in any context you find that your company is engaging in, is, in what is disrespectful and disparaging towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and towards Allah's creation, withdraw. That's a, a social value, it's a social ethic. But further than that, 
when you are told then well yeah until they change the topic that you withdraw until they change the topic and if you find that you've forgotten and unwittingly became part of a conversation that is disrespectful towards your faith, disrespectful towards Islam, disrespectful towards Allah, then that's recognized and that's from shaitan. And upon remembering, withdraw. So it, it is Notice the softness by which Quran instills this ethic. It understand, understands human frailties and our weakness towards the appeals of socializing. But it is a critical ethic because many of us do not cleanse our space and many of us will not make the point that if the conversation becomes disparaging disrespectful towards our religion or towards Allah then count us out we cannot be a part of this Okay, but it doesn't stop there. Because if you look at 70, that you also must abstain and cleanse your space from those who have turned their religion into a form of play. Now, what? how do you turn your religion into a form of play? And into, into, into whimsicalness and playfulness. Are those who have turned the religion into something that is completely subject to their whims and desires? So those who articulate whatever they articulate about religion, not because of any serious learning or not because of any serious inquiry, but now this, in, in translate this to our lives, those who talk about Islam and is base their knowledge on, of Islam on their customs and their traditions. We Syrians do X, Y, and Z. We Egyptians do X, Y, and Z. We Persians do whatever. We Indians do whatever. That is taking your religion as lab and lahu. You are not talking on the basis of any real knowledge of anything, but simply out of your perception that your customs and your traditions is God's will. And your attitude towards approaching religion in that way has to be the same 
like your attitude towards those who are disparaging and disrespectful towards religion. Cleanse your space. You cannot be a part of that dynamic. Okay. The other parts of the same of this these ayat we already talked about talked about that um, ultimately there is no way when accountability comes there, there is no excuse for having failed to take your religion seriously and having failed to deal and again that is a critical part of the ethics that Surah Al-Anam instills in us. I want to return again to verse 71 when Allah then anchors you back and says so, the reminder from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that there is a clear difference between those who recognize that their value system and system of morality comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and those who are confused about this they are clearly the ayat is addressed to believers and in the there is a, a, a narrative said about the occasion for revelation, but it's not reliable, but anyway, that clearly the ayat are talking about believers, uh, but it's telling believers, it, the, the report is that, um, um, there are some reports that say that after uh, the Prophet's uncle Hamza converted to Islam, that there were those who were trying to bring him back to, to, to pull him away from Islam, but I mean, there's, there, there, there's, um, I'll get to that in a second because uh, the, the, there's a lot of difficulties with this narrative for the, these particular verses. But that this image of the confused human being as a human being in the grips of shaitan, in the grips of the demonic. And the Quran, in more than one occasion, speaks about those who, on the one hand, have a belief in Allah, but on the other hand, are not willing to surrender to a value system what we've been talking about. It's not, we're not talking about laws, we're talking about values. To value system that is anchored in Allah. So those, for instance, who say, yeah, we're, we, we're Muslims, well, you know, they're confused about the importance of justice. 
or they're confused about the notion of salam, or they're confused about the idea of God's mercy, that those are as if, as if demonically touched. In other words, it's a very powerful image as to those who have anxiety and stress and doubt in their heart. They're not at peace because they are living in a world of contradictions that ultimately do not allow them to be at peace. And then, of course, this is followed by Allah's reminder. As the Quran repeatedly does, that when it reminds us, we say, hold steadfast to prayer and be, and take heed of your Lord. That the Prayer is the beginning of the path of clarity, time and again, that perfect your prayer, develop a relationship with your prayer, and then you will be on the path where you can get a clear, uh, get clarity about your commitments in life and the values that you ascribe to. Okay. Then we talked about the narrative about Ibrahim salam, and I already said a lot about this, but what I want to underscore is that What ultimately this narrative points out to, because we talked about how the Sufis took it, we talked about how the traditional approach took it, but I want to emphasize what I believe this narrative is doing in Surat Al-An'am. Because it harkens back to the centrality of the idea of natural law. And that, yes, the Prophet Ibrahim used his reason, but reason must be aided by revelation in order to find that natural law. Revelation, as we will see in a bit alone, unaided by understanding and comprehension can lead to horrible results. But at the same time, reason unaided by revelation simply does not reach what the Prophet Ibrahim expresses 
in 79 clearly and pristinely and powerfully I turned my face clearly towards and again the notion of father that who brought the earth into existence Hanifa in this context the, the expression of Hanif means purely and without conditions or without distractions, without impurities. And a commitment to steer away from shirk. And as we said, shirk is a challenge because it is not simply just worshipping other idols. But it covers all types of things that result from human weaknesses. And I already, not only in the last halaqa, but even in the khutbah at Jum'ah, I brought attention to that nothing short of an existential question when the Prophet Ibrahim السلام, poses the question, which of the factions, which of the two groups should be more entitled to end? Remember in Surah Ilaf Quraysh, when Allah reminds Quraysh that they owe him, owe Allah, Allah reminds them of two things, feeding them and giving them the blessing of am, safety, security. So when the Prophet Ibrahim poses that question, it is a moral normative challenge. Because if you as a believer exist in a society where and does not exist, there is no safety, there is no sense of security. For instance, because you live under a tyrannical government, because you could be stopped by the police anytime and the police could abuse you, because anyone can at any time from the government come and storm into your home and search your home and you can't even open your mouth and object. All of that, would be covered by this rhetorical question that the Prophet Ibrahim posed. And this is precisely why, right after this, as we said last halaqa, that Allah reminds us, الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَلَمْ يَلْبِسُوا إِيمَانُمْ بِظُلْمٍ Those who believe but they do not corrupt 
the purity of this belief was injustice. To my mind, it couldn't be clearer. It is not possible for Allah to have made the paradigm of what M is clearer. So when you hear Muslims talk about Amn and Aman in the context of a corrupt authoritarian government, in the context of a, of a nation that has, is lawless because the powerful get their way and the poor are always under the mercy of the system. Everything in the Quran defies that. But it is in the heart and center of Surah Al-An'am. Okay. And incidentally, one of the things I forgot to tell you about when the Prophet is asked about uh, these ayahs, ayahs 80 and 81 in Surah Al-An'am. about and said, well, who are those that are described by the Quran as having M? And the Prophet ﷺ said, they are those who are thankful when they receive, and they are patient when they are denied, and seek forgiveness when they have done wrong, and forgive when they have been wronged. Again, say it one more time. They are thankful when they receive. They are patient when they are denied. Who seek forgiveness when they have done wrong and forgive when they have been wronged. But this, some of modern fuqa especially, have tried to cite this hadith to say that see, M is an internal thing and has nothing to do with the, the political system or the social system under which you live. And I think that is absolutely absurd. Yes, the Prophet was talking about internal peace, but in no way that excludes the necessity of the internal peace being aided by a society that is just. Because to have this type of rhythm that you are thankful, you are patient, you are forgiving. If you exist in a highly corrupt society, an unjust society, 
this type of piety is very difficult to achieve because constantly everything around you brings out the worst in you, not the best of you. Okay. Then after that, Allah reminds us in Surah Al-An'am that the line of prophets that Allah have sent have all come with the same core ethical message, what I have referred to as the natural law of ethics. It was the values of justice, the values of salam, the values of forgiveness have always been the same values that Allah time and time again I want, and again, notice in 91, that after Allah says, ma qadrullah haqqa qadri, that they, they fail to give Allah Allah's due. When they, not when they disbelieve, Okay, and, and when they take Allah's revelation to Moses as a group of technicalities, but ignore what they do not like, so that in both parties, those who don't believe in Allah, those who deny Allah's revelation and those who corrupt Allah's revelation all have not given Allah Allah's due. But then what does it say? Qulillah. This is 91. So and feeling rushed last week I, I didn't pause at this because it is a very powerful ethic in your consciousness when the Quran tells you utter one word in response to the wrong you see say Allah one word now, if you say Allah the way that we often say it, like, you know, when, when uh, Arabs today, when they like something, like they hear music they like, or they see something pretty, they say Allah, that's completely devoid of meaning. Say Allah here is an amazing affirmation of tolerance. Because it's not say Allah and fight against them, it's not say Allah and compel them, it's say Allah and turn away from them and leave them to do what they've chosen to do, although it's wrong. But when you say Allah, the invocation of Allah's name the very invocation is an expression 
of walah, the, the expression of a longing for Allah to guide you towards everything that is represented by divinity. And as we said in, in the past two halakas, that the sifatillah, the characteristics of Allah, are signs of the traces of divinity in creation. They don't describe Allah. Allah is beyond description. But they are the manifestations of divinity in creation. So when you say Allah by definition, if you notice, it's, there's a juxtaposition here. Those who don't give Allah, Allah's due. Now, you say Allah. The implication is, say Allah, but this time, give Allah, Allah's due. You look at 91, it starts out with the don't give Allah, Allah's due. And then it tells you, in response to them, say Allah. Clear implication is, that you, by saying that, you will give Allah Allah's due. But you cannot give Allah Allah's due unless you understand everything that that magnanimous name connotes, including, I keep repeating, justice, peace, mercy. Gratitude. All the moral universe that this one word represents. But again, to turn away. Of course, some jurists said these verses were abrogated later in Medina and the always argument is the same, that when the permission was given to wage war, then all these verses were abrogated, and as I keep saying, that's a ridiculous argument. It's, it's ridiculous to say that just because Muslims were given permission to respond militarily to their oppressors, that somehow all the morality that was carefully spelled out in numerous surah in the Quran have now become abrogated. Okay. Then notice Allah goes back and says this book affirms the same moral order but again reminds you that the key to the beginning of the journey to attain that moral order is وَهُمْ عَلَىٰ صَلَاتِهِمْ يُحَافِظُونَ It's like Allah for Muslims anchored that there is no path forward for you if you decide that I will have Islam, but I will script on prayer. It's 
unworkable. The challenge is to perfect what your prayer is and what it does. Because so many of us pray, but our prayer has lost meaning out of habit and out of practice. You know, let's pray before Duhur is over. Let's pray before Asr's or whatever. But prayer, every utterance, when you recite Surah Al-Fatiha, for instance, you don't realize, but in the Surah Al-Fatiha, the entire universe of the Quran unfolds. Guide us to the righteous path. What's righteousness? Unless you've learned righteousness from the Quran, just uttering it becomes just words. Or when you say, Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen, you've affirmed the beginning that everything is built on a realization of gratitude. If, if every time you pray, you, uh, you, when you do sujood, you remember that you are putting the center of the intellect and you're saying, yes, I have an intellect. I have a brain that is capable of thinking of all types of things. But I put it before you, Allah, that I recognize that my intellect is a blessing and it's also a weapon. It could be very dangerous. So I submit it before you. And at this point, you remember that whatever thought processes you're going to undertake, you are going to discipline these thought processes with your commitment to Allah. So prayer is constantly the beginning of the past, the beginning of the road. As we said last halqa, 93, who is more unjust than that who invents lies and attributes these lies to Allah? Or that who, those who say that I've received revelation and they haven't. In my rush last week, I didn't tell you that there, is a, there was a man called Abdullah ibn Sarh. Abdullah ibn Sarh, um, was a Muslim in Mecca and he responding partly to the oppression, partly to, he apostated from Islam. And then later on in Medina, towards the end of the Medina period, he returns back to Islam. And it is said that, that this verse was revealed in response to Abdullah ibn Sarh. I think there, there is a mismatch because Abdullah ibn Sarh didn't claim that he was receiving revelation. He didn't claim to be a prophet. But he definitely claimed that 
the revelation that Muhammad was receiving was a lie. And when he apostated, it was painful for Muslims because he was one of the people that had become close to the Prophet But I think the, the verse is far more general than Abdullah ibn Sarah or anyone like Abdullah ibn Sarah as the traditional books of tafsir say. Um, if you claim something is halal or haram without evidence, you are lying about God. If you in, just shoot from the hip and say, this is God's law. You are lying about God. If you do as many imams that, unfortunately, you know, recently I heard of, uh, of an imam that, there, there are so many imams, unfortunately, that abuse so many women. And they always, the, the way that they, they abuse these women, the, the, uh, what's the name of that organization? Huh? Yeah. Right? So there's two. I can't hear. I, I can't see. Wait, let, let me see. I, I read the mouth. So, see it? In oh, in Sheikh's closing. Yeah. You know, unfortunately, but even I've seen so many, so many cases, but they always pretend that they are sort of receiving some type of revelation from Allah or something, you know, that Allah speaks to them directly or something. And, uh, you know, it, yeah, what did I say? Okay. Okay. Then, if you go to 95, Allah reminds us again with this critical idea that Allah فَالِقُ الْحَبُّ وَالنَّوَى and فَالِقُ الْإِصْبَاحِ And again, as we said, the idea of فَالِق the, is like Al-Fatir, same meaning, Al-Faliq, Al-Fatir, the one who differentiates, has the power of differentiation and demarcation and creation through the act of differentiation. So when Allah creates light that creates the distinction between light and darkness, that's an act of al-fatr and al-falaq. When Allah, out of darkness, creates the day, that's the act of al-falaq or al-fatr. The reason I mention this is because it will harken back to a central theme in Surah Al-An'am that the authority in not just creation, but in morality, belongs to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That 
it is the the and that attempting to turn away to other sources will have the disastrous consequences that Surat al-Anam speaks about. Um, I, I've talked about this last talk about, I just, it's so beautiful that I, I just want, I, uh, night aid. هو الذي أنشأكم من نفس واحدة فمستقر ومستودع قد فصلنا الآيات لقوم يفقهون so beautiful. You were all created from a single soul. One notice that this whole thing that you find, unfortunately, in Christianity and you find from in the Hadith literature of that Hawa was created from Adam's rib. A single soul, because the nature of the soul is neither female or male. It is the body that is male or female. But we all emerged from that single breath that Allah gives to create human life. There you get a lot in the traditional tafsir, you get a lot about, well, what is the mustaqar and what is the mustawda, but we don't need to, to get stuck with, you know, all the, the linguistic debates, but fundamentally, from that single soul, there is, it's like uh, saying, there is a destiny, there is a fate that you will go through. You've been anchored here, that's the reality. And the journey that you will take is inevitable. You can protest it, you can object, you can say I don't like it, you can say it's not fair, that, that is all irrelevant. That is a, a. And then, we've spilled out everything for those who study and reflect. It's like saying to you, look, as I am laying out these principles, of these moral principles that are going to become very, that are so critical to your life. From Allah's perspective, all of you have come from the same reality. And the journey is the journey. And it's either you are going to understand or you're not going to understand. It is up to you. That choice was put before you. And no one can exercise this choice for you. Okay. Then Surah Al-An'am, as we said, goes back to remind you 
of Allah's creation and Allah's miracles in creation. And concludes this with ذَلِكُمْ اللَّهُ رَبُّكُمْ لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّهُ خَالِقُ كُلِّ شَيْءٍ فَعْبُدُوهُ وَهُوَ عَلَى كُلِّ شَيْءٍ وَكِيلٍ So after this interlude in 103, says, this is your God. There is no other God who created all of this, all the miraculous existence that you see. So turn to God. It's sort of like, it's, it's as if talking to you, a sense of, of the most basic sense of logic in you. If all of this miraculous existence have come to be because of this God, how could it be that you turn to anything else? And as we said that that Allah is not seen, but Allah sees all. In traditional tafsir and in books of theology, there are these long debates about whether Allah can be seen, will be seen in the hereafter, with long debates between the Sufis, the Ash'aris, the Mu'tazilis, but, um, you know, I, I, I don't want to... Uh, uh, what is sufficient for us is to say Allah's reminder is that you are never away from Allah's gaze. There is nothing that you can do in your life that is not done in the full sight of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If only you would remember that. Because if we would remember that, doing what's wrong becomes very difficult, doesn't it? We, it's when we forget or when we try to ignore that Allah sees. You know, it's like doing something really wrong right in front of your mom or your father. Um, but Allah's gaze, unlike our parents, doesn't disappear at times, doesn't fall asleep at times. So you can, or, you know, it is, it, you're entirely in front of this gaze. And then the reminder again that, but out of this, whoever sees, is for their own good. And whoever is blind, it, 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 they harm themselves. As to the Prophet tell them, I am not here to control you. My gaze is not upon you. Okay. And then, Although I've touched upon this in, in the last halaqah, but I'm going to repeat it again. That the reminder to the Prophet and to other Muslims, وَلَوْ شَاءَ اللَّهُ مَا أَشْرَكُوا وَمَا جَعَلْنَاكَ عَلَيْهِمْ حَفِيظًا وَمَا أَنْتَ عَلَيْهِمْ بِوَكِيلٍ If Allah would have willed, He would not have disbelieved. And we have not made you a controller over them. You are not responsible for their behavior. So, Coercion is out. 
But moral responsibility for your behavior is key. And this is precisely why, because of this moral responsibility, وَلَا تَصُبُّ الَّذِينَ يَدْعُونَ مِن دُونِ اللَّهِ فَيَصُبُّ اللَّهَ عَدْوَانًا بِغَيْرِ عِلْمٍ كَذَلِكَ زَيَّنَّا لِكُلِّ أُمَّةٍ عَمَلَهُمْ So moral responsibility is that you do not provoke the enmity of your enemies so that they become more offensive towards things that should be sanctified. And the reminder that ultimately the reason we don't go and provoke is that they're responsible for their conduct and we're responsible for our conduct. If your provocation leads to a greater moral offense, you're responsible for that. Now, think of, again, an oppressed people being told this. Even as you're being tortured and persecuted, Allah comes in and says, don't call their idols names. There is a hadith that the obscene people love to cite that is not authentic, attributed to Abu Bakr, uh, in which reportedly Abu Bakr says something to the effect like um, the Arabic equivalent of, um, I can't even say it, say it because it's so, although it's in Bukhari, unfortunately. And so, uh, F your gods. Um, the Arabic equivalent. Most certainly apocryphal. Because even when they were persecuted in Mecca, the Quranic command is that you are responsible for your moral conduct that doesn't lead to a greater ugliness or the spiral of a process of ugliness. Okay. Um, the 109 there is a, just for your general information, when Allah talks about that they swear if you bring us an ayah that we will believe, there is a report that um, the Meccans went to the Prophet Muhammad and said, if you turn the mountain of a Safa into a mountain of gold, that will be conclusive proof that you are in fact a prophet and we will all believe. And the report says that the Prophet started praying to God to 
turned the mountain into gold. And uh, this ayah was revealed to say, no, don't worry about it, because even if it was turned into a mountain of gold, they still wouldn't believe. Personally, I find this very inconsistent with the personality of the Prophet. The idea that the Prophet will start praying to Allah, turn this into a mountain of gold, so that they will believe. It's just if you've studied the personality of the Prophet long enough, there is a tendency in the Hadith literature, unfortunately, um, to over-dramatize the desire of the, the to, to try to portray the Prophet as just over, in an overly dramatic way, keen that everyone would believe that it has the, 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 the medieval style of exaggerating things. If you read enough history, and you know the way people spoke at different historical periods. So it makes sense from a historian's perspective, but it doesn't make sense from familiarity with the moral character of the prophet. Okay. Okay, so then this remarkable passage, which we've touched upon, that we've made for every prophet enemies, that we've made for every prophet enemies from demons of both humans and jinn. And demons of both humans and jinn inspired each other We've encountered the concept of zukhruf before. Arrogant, eloquent talk. But this is become central in the Islamic ethics of Amr Maruf and Nahyan al Munkar. Is that anyone that takes on the task of reminding people of their moral obligations, it is one thing to tell people believe or pray. Yeah, people would say, okay, fine. But once you tell them things like justice, things like equity, things like you can't favor the rich over the poor, or you can't give an esteemed status or a special treatment to the rich over the poor, or you, these types of ethical core values, what you will be confronted with, what the Quran describes as demons that are humans and jinn. And zukhruf al much of the discourse 
is an affirmation of the egotistical self. But the egotistical self philosophizes privilege and inequity in numerous ways that sound profound, sound even intellectually attractive. If you've ever read, uh, what's her name? Uh, the woman who wrote uh, Fountainhead. Ayn Rand. Ayn Rand. Reading Ayn Rand actually reminds me of Zuhra Fakkawal Gurura, where she basically argues that it is immoral to be kind, to be generous, to be giving. But articulates it, and that's why she's a favorite among neocons. They love her because she, she philosophizes the ethic of selfishness. But the way she articulates it is very eloquent and intellectually profound. And unless you have a strong ethical core, you might say, well, yeah, that, that, that sounds philosophically rigorous. Um, there are a lot of smart people, a lot of smart people, who don't have a strong ethical core. And those smart people have the ability to spin talk in ways that sound very profound. But that everything for a Muslim has to come back to the ethical core. It is not the eloquence. It is not the way you can construct the argument. It is not the, the what type of fancy label you put on a philosophy that matters. But, but ultimately, it all goes back to does the creator of the heavens and earth approve of this morality or not? There is a, a fellow who had studied political science in the United States. He has a doctorate. And after the revolution in Egypt, he would sit there and talk about theory of political science. And I used to listen to him and I, and I would say to myself, wow, you know, he, he did really study democratic theory because he, he's saying things that are intellectually sound. Fast forward after the coup, Everything this guy says philosophizes dictatorship, actual dictatorship, while twisting and turning and making all types of hooplas to continue labeling a democracy. I forgot his name. He's, he's well known, he's in Egyptian TV. And she, subhanAllah, 
could the Quran have put a better way of describing it? Demons that are human and demons that are jinn. That spin talk. What was democratic theory became pure apologetics for everything that is authoritarian, dictatorial, unjust, massive abuses of human rights. But it's all said with a straight face and with the same fancy, eloquent language that gives you the illusion of an educated mind. You guys know who I'm talking about? He used to be uh, in the channel that Ibrahim Isa and others created. You sit there, always talks about in democratic theory, blah, 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 blah. I'm sure you can, you, you can imagine his face. I want to shame him and name him, but... <laughs> okay. Okay. There were no... In 1.14, أفغير لا يبتغي حكما وهو الذي أنزل إليكم الكتاب مفصلا. This goes back to that theme again of Allah's position as the authoritative source. Do I seek حكم? Do I seek a source of authority other than Allah? Which Allah? Allah that sent this book, Mufassal. So again, Allah alerting us that this book, if you study it, if you understand it, you will find in it the path that you seek. وَتَمَّتْ كَلِمَّةُ رَبِّكَ صِدْقًا وَعَدْلًا This is 115. The reason I pause at this, and although I, I stopped at it last halakha, but again, I pause at it once again. Because when you say that the word of your Lord now has been perfected, completed, sidq is truth, adl is justice. People like Razi and Zamakhshari notice the obvious point that if this is the nature of your of your Lord's word is truth and justice, then by definition anything that is not truth and not justice is inconsistent with your Lord. Numerous in, in many in, in Islamic um, fuqaha who wrote about justice 
will always talk about those who attempt to philosophize the existence of injustice as somehow tolerable to Allah. But what stayed with me is that among the things they cite, that everything that is divine rejects the idea of injustice, regardless of how it is justified or somehow, um, you know, the zukhruf is added to it, the, 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 the decorative aspects added to it. It doesn't work. And so, whether you call yourself an Islamic state or you don't call yourself an Islamic state, if the reality of the existence is injustice, then there is no truth of the divine. Okay. And then, of course, you notice that 117, the warning, وَإِن تُطَعَ أَكْثَرَ مَنْ فِي الْأَرْضِ يُدُلُّوكَ عَنْ سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ إِيَّا اتَّبِعُونَ إِلَّا الظَّنْ وَإِنْ هُمْ إِلَّا يَخْرُصُونَ That, and others have stood at this verse and noticed what I'm telling you. أَكْثَرَ مَنْ فِي الْأَرْضِ the majority of those on earth will never be guided, will never be Muslim. Not that if you're Muslim, you're necessarily guided, but the majority will not be guided. And so the challenge is that you do not fall prey to the ethics of the majority. Because if you go with the majority, you will be led astray. This creates quite um, a challenge. And this is not the way, unfortunately, you know, we Muslims, because of law, because of the mechanisms of law, we always talk about ijma', ijma', ijma'. But note, ijma' is a legal tool and it's a technical tool. But Ijma' as a tool for social morality, it's risky because moral uprightness is often in the hands of the minority, not the majority. And too often we ignore this fact and we think simply because most people are doing X, then it must be okay. But Surah Al-An'am, as other surah in the Quran that inshallah will cover, reminds you that the majority speculate upon morality. But your morality should be anchored in the awareness of the divine will, not upon the speculative theories. And subhanAllah, if this held true at the time of the Prophet this holds true 
a million times over in our time. Because in our time, there are far more theories and academic presses keep spewing out numerous books on morality and ethics all the time. And academia is very adept at phrasing and coining phrases that make things sound original. Although a lot of times they're saying the same things, but you know, every professor wants to phrase things in a way that sounds like it's an original contribution. But uh, being anchored in the firm moral core, I'm not, I'm the last person in the world to tell you don't read academic books. You know, I, I, this is what I, what I live for. I, I'm, I eat up academic works like, you know, like they're a fancy meal. But regardless of the academic text I'm reading, I always go back and ask myself the basic question. I am, is this anchored in the firm awareness of morality? Or does this ultimately attempt to justify what I know from my relationship with Allah as something immoral? Okay. Then it returns back after reminds, reminding us of this and this is now where, it's, as I said before, that it will, Surah Al-An'am, uh, oh, I forgot another, I, I forgot it last time and I was going to forget it again today. And 115, um, no, not 115, um, where, where are we? Um, um, no, 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 I'm sorry, actually, I didn't forget. No, it's, it's, a, it's, I didn't forget anything. I'm fine, okay. So then it comes back and says, it's a, we often don't realize that when we, the Quran tells us, do not eat except from what Allah's name has been mentioned on. It is expressing a moral normative relationship to existence that everything has a right to exist and you cannot extinguish its existence except in Allah's name. Meaning, except per the permission of Allah. So that means that if you don't have Allah's permission, you can't. You can't just destroy something for the sake of it or because you feel that you know, as often people do these days, they, they, have, they don't think twice about chopping down a tree if it's in mild inconvenience. Everything has a right to exist and you cannot take away that right except in Allah's name. Not even killing a fly can be done except in Allah's name. But more than that, you don't have a right to consume except in Allah's name. 
You don't have a right to wear anything except in Allah's name. You don't have a right to walk anywhere except in Allah's name. If you want to understand your relationship to existence, in the same way that Allah has taught us before, that don't say any, that I will do anything except if Allah wills. Here, consumption cannot be except in Allah's name. And the warning that those who argue with you that this insistence on something as natural as consumption being in Allah's name is unreasonable and, 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 un, and excessive. And in the case of the Meccans, the Meccans had a strange law that some meat they would mention Allah's name over. And some me, they refused to mention Allah's name over. But, and some Mufassirun, the way they understand this verse is as applying to the Meccan situation exclusively. But I, I think that is killing the normative energy of the text. Because the text itself simply juxtaposes between those who say, who accept the idea that nothing should be consumed except with Allah's name, and those who, for some reason or another, reject the idea. And it tells us, وَإِنَّ كَثِيرًا لَيُضُلُّونَ بِأَهْوَائِهِمْ بِغَيْرِ عِلْمٍ إِنَّ رَبَّكَ هُوَ أَعْلَمُ بِالْمُعْتَدِينَ that, again, those who argue with you that this is too much, recall that what is functioning here is nothing more than their whims. But it is Allah that knows what are, what Mu'tadil, what is an act of transgression, an act of immorality, as what is not. Okay. And it returns to this as we see in 121. That this is one twenty one. Do not eat again what Allah's name has not been mentioned on. And it goes as far as saying that the argument that was used by some to say, you guys are unreasonable. Why do you insist that Allah's name is necessary for consumption? Now the point is, the, 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 those who argued with Muslims 
were not arguing because they were so bothered by the utterance of Allah's name, but in fact it is a life outlook. Why is it that you want to give Allah a role in everything, even what you eat? And the description of the Quran is biting that this argumentativeness comes from demons. And remember that demons could be human or could be jinn. And telling Muslims that if in fact you end up obeying them, then you are mushriks. So in which way, in what way are they mushriks by obeying them? Go back to the idea of shirk as a system of authority. Who did you ultimately consider to be authoritative in your sense of right or wrong? And that is why it says, if you obey them, then you are mushriks. Okay. And there are people, this is 122. There are people who are wedded to darkness and will not come out of it regardless of what you do. In the books of hadith or books of uh, tafsir, they say that there are various reports. Some say that it was revealed when the Prophet's uncle Hamza converted to Islam and Abu Jahl went to try to convince him to leave Islam. Some say that it was revealed when Umar ibn Khattab converted to Islam and the Meccans tried to dissuade them. There are even reports that it was revealed about Ammar ibn Yasser um, who converted to Islam and died in the Battle of Sufin fighting on the side of Ali ibn Abi Talib radiallahu against uh, those who rebelled against him. I don't think it really matters. I think what matters is the message. And the reality is that there are people who have lost themselves in the darkness that they are no longer reachable. Juxtapose, juxtapose to this are those that the Quran describes as as if they have been brought from life to death sorry from death to life and have a light right between their hands and the, the, this is where the, those who walk with light between their hands, then you get these reports that it was Hamza, other reports that it was Omar, other reports that it was 
Amar ibn Yasir. Part of the, the, the journey towards Allah, Allah and internalizing the ethics that Allah teaches is a part of gaining that luminosity that the Quran talks about. And I wish it was the goal of every Muslim to worship Allah in order to gain that luminosity. Because it's not from ibadah, but it is ibadah and ethical conduct. Unethical conduct, regardless of your ibadah. If you pray a million rakahs, if you are an unjust human being, if you are a cruel human being, if you are an inequitable human being, if you are a human being that sees themselves as above others, luminosity will not come. The light will not come. Okay. And then after that is the Quranic reminder that remember that corruption after warning us about the majority and after warning us about being morally steadfast and after warning us about arguments that are full of zuhruf, full of flowery constructs, that that corruption begins with the powerful. Corruption begins with the privileged. Corruption is most of the time starts with that class and unless you have a society that is able to restrain that class you will be lost and let me because this is a profound idea in political science right in political science you talk about restraints and balances restraints and balances is what is that if the powerful start wanting to do unjust things, is that you have the legal mechanisms to restrain the powerful. When we talk about theories of justice, or rule of law, or democratic theory, fundamentally that's what we're talking about. Is that rule of law is that, well, you know, the, the rich will want privileges, will want exceptions, but the rule of law is that we have a legal system where you can come to the rich and say, no, you can't behave like you wish to behave just because you're rich. So the Quran comes and tells us that corruption begins always with the elite. The obvious question is, what type of system are you going to create that can restrain the elite when it wants to cause corruption. Are you just going to say, may Allah protect us? You're going to do dua? Are you just going to say, may Allah you know, punish them for their evil? That's not a system. That's not justice. Relying on Allah to fix your problems for you is not justice. The challenge is nothing short 
that when I read this, I say, SubhanAllah, Allah challenged us to create the rule of law long before the concept of rule of law was invented. Then we got to this psychological, refined psychological point. The beauty of Islam, this is 125, which again I touched upon, but I was rushed, so I want to come back to it. This refined psychological point, the beauty of Islam is liberation in the heart and the chest. As a Muslim, and this is the big challenge, as a Muslim, does Islam make you breathe easier? Does Islam make you feel freer? Or does Islam make you feel suffocated, burdened, anxious? This, by the way, also applies to Muslim spaces. If you go inside the mosque, do you breathe, say, I am home. Alhamdulillah, I, I feel I can breathe. This is a safe space for me. This is a liberating space. Or do you go in feeling burdened and anxious and worried? Do you go in worried about who's going to chastise you? Do you go in worried about who's going to tell you you're doing something wrong? Do you go in worried about who's going to lecture you? This is not a small point. Because if it is the feeling of being uptight in the chest, then there is wrong, something wrong with the, with the Islam that exists. This was taught to me not by some liberal theory, this was taught to me by the Quran. Look into the spaces that you create. I assure you, the companions of the Prophet ﷺ felt Islam was a fresh of a breath of fresh air. Islam made them feel lighter, happier, freer. Does the Islam of today make us feel this way or make us feel uptight and suffocated and anxious? Because no law can be cited, well, yeah, but we need to be this way to achieve this law or achieve that law. If the law cannot serve the spirit, then there's something wrong with the law. If the law undermines the spirit of what is supposed to guide the law, then there's something wrong with the law. And if you don't have lawyers, legalists, jurists, that can understand this relationship between the spirit and the law and how to have the intellectual ability to engage the law to achieve the spirit, then there's something wrong with your jurists. Then you need to rethink the, the training of your jurists, the morality of your jurists, because there is a spirit that Surah Al-An'am, like so much of Mecca, Mecca Quran, teaches, teaches us. 
that must be served and fulfilled. Okay. And then the reminder, وَهَذَا صِرَاطُ رَبِّكَ مُسْتَقِيمًا Again, قَدْ فَصَّلْنَا الْآيَاتِ لِقَوْمٍ يَذَّكَّرُونَ Now, this is the sirat. As I told you, constantly we go back to Allah Mahdina Sirat Al-Mustaqeem. What is the Sirat? Among the things Surat Al-An'am is that it plays, it goes a long distance in spelling out the Sirat. And again reminds you that this Quran is where the details, the specifics were spelled out in order to understand what the Sirat is and to walk the path of the Sirat. Okay. And here is then where we get to Dar es Salaam. Among the best, and again, I've, I've skipped this last time because I was rushed, but among the best that I've read is that Dar al-Islam must be Dar al-Salam and Dar al-Salam must be Dar al-Islam and if the one doesn't lead to the other then there is a corruption so there is I forgot the name of, of uh, the faqih but he was asked is the Dar that we live in Dar al-Islam by one of his students so he said, ask yourself, is it Dar al-Salam? The answer to that will tell you if it's Dar al-Islam or not. Dar al-Salam, yes, it, 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 there's Dar al-Salam in the hereafter, but it means Jannah. But Dar al-Salam, it is the actual fulfillment of the ethics and morality and values of divinity in society. It is the abode where you can, in fact, experience safety, experience tranquility. It's the abode where your needs are met, your dignity is met, and the Dar al-Islam as a technical matter, as a jurisdictional issue, is very different than the moral question that if a salam doesn't exist, meaning tranquility, safety, dignity, needs, basic needs, then you have failed in achieving Darul Islam. Okay. Oh, okay. Oh, right now? Okay. So this point and then we're going to break for uh, break for us. Notice the point that I touched upon a Juma. Or actually, I forgot if I touched upon a Jummah or planned to touch upon a Jummah, and then I forgot to touch upon it in Jummah. 128. That in the hereafter, Allah 
the question is posed. ويوم يحشرهم جميعا يا معشر الجن قد استكثرتم من الإنس. That in the year after, Allah looks at those human beings who when when Allah first asked the question to jinn, meaning jinn, you've led so many human beings astray. And the response is to this is that the ants will say, God, we influence each other. Until we uh, until we reached the point we're in, which is hellfire. I pause at this because our modern mind likes to ignore the fact that evil jinn is a reality and the whispering of jinn is a reality and that when you suddenly find yourself thinking of things that are wrong and these things become that haunt your mind like a like a like an obsessive desire. When you say rajim and you mean it, you are asking Allah to protect you from the influence of unseen forces that are dark and that are evil. But look at what follows us. وَكَذَلِكَ نُوَلِّي بَعْضَ الظَّالِمِينَ بَعْضًا بِمَا كَانُوا يَكْسُبُونَ That ultimately God leaves the unjust, leading the unjust by their choices because this is what they've earned. awareness that and put it this way overconfidence in your autonomy as a human being and in your psychological independence is a folly we human beings in the same way that we can be easily manipulated by what jumps up on our computer screen and easily manipulated by marketers and by companies and by governments and by the flow of information, we can also be manipulated by jinn. It is your strength and your resolve where you say, I have a moral core. 
and I will stick to my moral core. No intellectual argument, no desire, no bodily desire, no whim, nothing will sway me from my moral core. That is often the only thing that will save you. You are human. You know, whether it is a corporation that wants you to spend your money unjustly on unjust things, or a jinn that wants you to indulge a sexual desire, it, you have to go back to your moral core and anchor yourself in your moral core in order to keep on a Sirat al-Mustaqeem. SubhanAllah, also, although this topic, you know, takes us, um, you will find that all those who engage in um, occult practices, um, whether they know it or not, they are using jinn. Um, I mean, if if you've if you read the the history of the emergence of occultism in the West and people like Aleister Crowley and uh, the 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 whole left hand movement and Remarkably, I mean, it, 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 jinn, the reality of Jinn's participation is all over it. The, even Aleister Crowley, who's uh, known as the beast and the, the most evil man in the world and all of that, uh, you know, he, he went to uh, Egypt for I don't know how long and developed a relationship with a Jinn who guided a lot of his magic and writings and anyway okay now then once again Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reminds us in 131 that once again, Allah reminds us that Allah doesn't destroy a, a people except by their own deeds, that it is the injustice of a people, it is the ignorance of a people that makes Allah not stand with them and allow them to suffer the consequences of their own actions. Okay. And then what I, what is an iconic idea in the Quran, <coughs> Of course, that 
each is rewarded in direct relationship to their deeds. So it, it, there is no, uh, it, the scales of justice with your Lord is meticulous. However, وَرَبُّكَ الْغَنِيُّ ذُو الرَّحْمَةِ So Allah needs no other. But Allah's, as we've been informed in Surah Al-An'am before, that Allah's approach to creation is through the prism of Rahmah, of mercy. And therefore, it, we ought to remember that if Allah wills, it would be quite simple in Yashat, that it would be quite simple for Allah to replace us with another. That we exist and in a relationship of istikhlaf, we are in effect deputies of the divine. The, the reality is that so often we, we, we refuse to acknowledge this relationship of deputyship, that we are not on earth to do what, whatever we want to do with earth, but we are representatives of the owner of the earth. We are an, whether an express agency or an implied agency. And when we fail, one of the clear options before Allah is to eradicate those who fail and replace them with another. And this happens throughout history, time, again, time and again. But the problem is, is that so often human beings indulge in injustice and inequity and in a lack of mercy and take for granted their existence as if it is beyond Allah to simply, as many nations have vanished before, to make this yet another vanishing nation that is replaced with another. Okay. Then we come to a fascinating discourse, and that the reason that Surah Al-An'am became known as Surah Al-An'am is that the Meccans had a system of laws that they held as sacrosanct, but they were um, laws full of um, uh, distinctions that didn't necessarily, it, it's not about logic, but it, it was about their own practices. So 
Um, they would, if they slaughter animals, a certain portion had to go to the temple and the servants of the temples. And a certain portion would go not to the poor, but a certain portion would go to the rich families, especially the families who did, did the slaughter itself. And they had laws that regulated what meat can be eaten by women and what can be eaten by men. So they would, like the, the, the back of, um, of a cow, for instance, they'd say, well, this portion men can eat, but this portion women cannot eat. And so if you notice, first it starts by challenging the Meccans about these laws about halal and haram, what Allah allows, and most of these laws they attributed to God. And they claimed that these are the laws that God wanted or wants. So some goes to the temple, some doesn't go to the temple. Some, the back can be consumed, this part of the animal cannot be eaten, this part can be eaten. This part can be eaten only by men. This part cannot be eaten by men. So they had a, a variety of laws, and there's no, no point in going into all the details of these laws. But you notice from beginning from 135 to 139, and it will come back again further to address this issue. And the Quran points to something very fascinating, is that as it's challenging them about these laws, about the way they apportion food, that they are, they, they have these various technical dif distinctions as to what part is allowed, when, how, all of that, and who can eat it and who cannot eat it. It says, وَكَذَلِكَ زَيَّنَ لِكَثِيرٍ مِنَ الْمُشْرِكِينَ قَتْلَ أَوْلَادِهِمْ شُرَكَاءُهُمْ لِيَرُدُّوهُمْ وَلِيُلْبِسُوا عَلَيْهِمْ دِينَهُمْ وَلَوْ شَاءَ اللَّهُ مَا فَعَلُوهُ فَذَرْهُمْ وَمَا يَفْتَرُونَ That because of their approach to these legal issues, they go as far as murdering their own children. And this, of course, invites you to pause because think, well, how is it that their approach to the issue of slaughter and meat distribution has contributed 
to the, an evil practice like killing the children. And 140, the Quran returns again to the same theme with it says, قَدْ خَثِرَ الَّذِينَ قَطَلُوا أَوْلَادَهُمْ سَفَهَمْ بِغَيْرِ That condemning those who killed their children That because their system of laws emerge from the whims of whatever functional necessity they perceive, the functional necessity made them say, well, this, you know, a portion of the meat must go to the elite. And a functional necessity led them to exclude not just the poor, but to exclude women from the consumption of the meat. But since they've accepted that there are no moral boundaries other than what their elite tell them are the moral boundaries. When, it, when the elite told them it's acceptable for the poor to kill their children, they found no problem in that. If you are not anchored in a firm awareness that comes other than, and remember, Surah Al-An'am warns us that it is the elite that begins the corruption. The meat laws of Mecca was set by the elite to serve the economic interests of the elite. But it is also the elite that, that ultimately set the precedent that there is no problem that if you can't take care of, if you can't feed your children, kill them. Or if the daughters of, um, uh, of the lower tribes, the tribes that cannot protect their daughters from enslavement, the elite didn't want these daughters to be captured in warfare, but didn't want to protect them either. Didn't want to make, make the investment to, to make them secure. And the easier, more functional route for the elite is for the poor families to kill these daughters. Just save us the headache, get rid of them. And the Quran comes and condemns these practices because they're anchored in the whimsical desires of the elite, not in any, not in Allah's moral order. And and the Quran then comes in Surah Al-An'am and says all these laws are 
laws the, these are the, the paths of the demonic. And summarizes the entire approach to these laws with فَمَنْ أَظْلَمُ مِمَّنْ افْتَرَى عَلَى اللَّهِ كَذِبًا لِيُضِلَّ النَّاسِ بِغَيْرِ عِلْمٍ إِنَّ اللَّهَ لَا يَهْدِ قَوْمِ الظَّالِمِينَ This is 144. Who, is, who can be worse than who lies about what God wants and misguides people? Those are truly the Dalimin, the unjust. So, after taking us on this moral journey and fettering out, as it says, various moral parameters, it comes towards the end of the surah. And you would think, again, I keep going, to, because this is part of the miraculous thing about the Quran, is to a persecuted oppressed people and you think that these oppressed people would want to make their persecution even worse by challenging dietary laws but not just the dietary laws the laws of killing children which is going to enrage the Meccans further you guys are going to be talking to us about the way that we deal with how we slaughter cattle and how we slaughter human beings. But the paradigm is the issue. Is when human beings start seeing the source of their morality, the source of what is right and wrong, what the elite tells them, should or should not be. And follows that as conclusive authority. But that's exactly what shift is. When it is your leaders, regardless of what is ethical, what is moral, start telling you, this is okay, this is not okay. And you say, oh yes, that's shift. That's precisely what it should. Now look at the response. قل, this is 145. Okay. So he comes and says, well, tell them that all your laws are nonsense. And the only thing that is haram is the mayta, the, the dead animal. Animal improperly slaughtered, 
or khinzir, pork. Except, of course, for the cases of necessity. And it addresses an objection that was not relevant in Mecca. And that is the laws that applied in Jewish law. Because it segues and it says, as to Jews, we had special dietary laws that you find in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, by the way, that laws that have to do with consumption of fat and meat that has fat in it, and laws that have to do with consuming animals that do um, uh, meaning uh, animals that have nails or fangs or not, claws, claws. Um, but it, it but it explains something that you actually find in Leviticus and Deuteronomy itself that these laws were prescribed specifically for Jews in response, Allah responding to an act of disobedience committed by Jews at a certain point in history with Moses and as a result, Allah decreed these laws. But these laws are no longer valid. And that's why the segue you find in 146. That as far as Muslims are concerned, these laws are no longer valid. The only prohibitions when it comes to meat are the ones that were set out in 145. And it goes on to make clear or underscores that when it comes to the issue of haram and halal, To say that something is haram or halal without evidence is kathib Allah. It is giving, it is lying about God. And to speculate about it, in other words, to make something haram due to dhan, is also lying about God. And then in 150, it says, let them bring evidence forward that in fact, this is the laws that they tell you are the laws that apply to the slaughter of animals. Let them bring forward evidence that these are in fact God's laws. So if they swear that this is in fact and attest that these are in fact God's laws, turn away from them. Because these are their ahwa, 
These are nothing more than their whims. Okay. Then, 151, which is the heart of Surah Al-An'am. قُلْ تَعَالُوا أَتْلُوا مَا حَرَّمَ رَبُّكُمْ عَلَيْكُمْ Okay, now, come. Let me tell you. You have all these rules about slaughtering animals and, and excluding women and killing children. Well, let me tell you what God's law is. قُلْ تَعَالُوا أَتْلُوا مَا حَرَّمَ رَبُّكُمْ عَلَيْكُمْ أَلَّا تُشْرِكُوا بِهِ شَيْئًا One, associate no partners. Two, وَبِالْوَالِدَيْنِ إِحْسَانًا And treat your parents kindly. وَلَا تَقْتُلُوا أَوْلَادَكُمْ مِنْ إِمْلَاقٍ نَحْنُ نَرْضُقُكُمْ وَإِيَّاهُمْ Three, and don't kill your, kill your children. Especially if you kill them out of fear of poverty. Not that killing your children is ever okay. وَلَا تَقْرَبُوا الْفَوَاحِشَ ظَهْرَ مِنْهَا وَمَا بَطَنُ Four, stay away from al-fawahish. Al-fawahish are morally egregious acts. Normally, it's used to refer to sexual acts. وَلَا تَقْتُلُوا النَّفْسَ الَّتِي حَرَّمَ اللَّهُ إِلَّا بِالْحَقِّ And don't commit murder. ذَلِكُمْ وَصَّاكُمْ بِهِ لَعَلَّكُمْ تَعْقِلُونَ This is what Allah has decreed. So, shirk, parental being good or honoring your parents, not killing your children, not committing fawahish, and not committing murder. وَلَا تَقْرَبُوا مَانَ الْيَتِيمِ إِلَّا بِالَّتِي هِيَ أَحْسَنِ And do not steal the money of orphans. وَالْفُ كَيْلَ وَالْمِيزَانَ بِالْقِسْتِ And be just in measures and meticulous in your pursuit of justice. لا نكلف نفسا إلا وسعها لا نكلف نفسا إلا وسعها We do not ask a soul to bear more than it is able to. Why is it there? It's like Allah saying, and what I expect you to do is to do your best. I know that the command is justice in measures, but the point is not for you to be paranoid and to sit there and count grains, but to do your best. Okay. وَإِذَا قِلْتُمْ فَعْدِلُوا وَلَوْ كَانَ ذَا قُرْبَ And if you speak, speak justly. Even if it is against a relative. And if you promise, fulfill your obligations. 
ذَلِكُمْ وَصَّاكُمْ بِهِ لَعَلَّكُمْ تَذَكَّرُونَ So notice again the moral code that comes at the end of Surah Al-An'am, this discourse upon law, and saying this is not what God's core law is. God's core law is about shirk, about parents, about abstaining from fawahish, abstaining from killing children, abstaining from murder. God's law is about justice in everything, including measurements, meaning commercial dealings. God's law is about speaking the truth, testifying to truth, even if it is against your loved ones and your relatives and fulfilling your obligations and your promises. You cannot be people that say, I will do and not do. This is the Sirat al-Mustaqeem that Allah wants you to follow. And don't allow yourself to deviate in sideways. In other words, what Surah Al-An'am has been warning you about all along, don't allow whether it is the intellectual arguments, don't allow whether it is the enticements of jinn, whether it is the opinion of the majority, don't allow any of that to complicate the path, to make you deviate from the, that core moral message. And again, that this is Allah's wasiyah, this is Allah's commandment to you, this is Allah's testament to you. And then it returns back again to affirm it's as if for a Muslim, it's as if telling a Muslim you cannot be a Muslim unless you firmly understand that this moral code is not just for you. This is the moral code that was sent to Moses, Hudan wa Rahmah. This is the moral code of all the prophets. And then, وَهَذَا كِتَابٌ أَنزَلْنَاهُ مُبَارَكٌ فَاتَّبِعُوهُ وَاتَّقُوا لَعَلَّكُمْ تُرْحَمُونَ So, and after affirming that this is the same moral code that has been sent all along, this book affirms that same moral code yet again. Okay. And then Allah tells the Prophet, we know that they say, well, there were books sent to Christians before us, books sent to Jews before us, and we never paid attention to the message or the, what was sent to Jews and Christians before us. And 
they say, meaning the Meccans, if Allah wanted us to be guided by a prophet, Allah would have sent the Torah or the Injil upon us. And in fact, if Allah would have sent the Torah or Injil upon us, we would have followed the Torah or Injil. But Allah didn't want to send these two earlier messages to us, so it's, it can't be that Allah now is sending us this Quran. This, is a, this was a, one of the arguments that the Meccans made. فَقَدْ جَاءَكُمْ بَيِّنَةٌ مِّن رَبِّكُمْ وَهُدًا وَرَحْمَةٌ So, again it goes back and says, no, what this, what has come to you is bayina, is a clarifying book, the book that clarifies what is wrong from right, hudan وَرَحْمَةٌ guidance and mercy. فَمَنْ أَظْلَمُ مِمَّنْ كَذَّبَ بِآيَاتِ اللَّهِ وَصَدَفَ عَنْهَا So who, who is worse than that who has turned away? Okay. Then of course, a reminder that death will come, you will confront the angels, but then this ayah that has preoccupied Muslims for centuries. Then it comes, in, in this Meccan moment, it says, إِنَّ الَّذِينَ فَرَّقُوا دِينَهُمْ وَكَانُوا شِيعًا لَسْتَ مِنْهُمْ فِي شَيْءٍ إِنَّمَا أَمْرُهُمْ إِلَى اللَّهِ ثُمَّ يُنْبِئُهُمْ بِمَا كَانُوا يَفْعَلُونَ Those who have split their religion into different sects, They, you have nothing to do with them, they have nothing to do with you. Now, of course, in Mecca, Muslims had not split their religion into different sects. So it makes perfect sense when so many companions are later on were asked, why does Allah tell you that those who split the religion into different sects, was it talking about Jews or was it talking about Christians? Is it, is it blaming them for... And the Prophet and many of the companions, they, like so many reports of us, says, no, in fact, it was a warning to us before we go to Medina that there will be events like there will be factions like the hypocrites who worked strongly to divide the religion. The, the famous uh, incident of the, the mosque that the hypocrites built that the Prophet ﷺ tore, tore down. And that the biggest challenge for us Muslims after the death of the Prophet is that we don't split into different factions and sects warring with one another. But in books of Islamic jurisprudence, among the fairest topics that you deal with in usul al-fiqh is if Allah told Muslims, do not split your religion into different 
sects and parties. Then does this apply to, madhab, to the madhab, to the different schools of jurisprudence? And Ahl hadith and the Wahhabis have often ended up saying yes, but in the, the, what, the, the history of Islamic jurisprudence, the answer is no. The, the, the big difference is that you can disagree about God's law as long as you consider yourself one people. This is precisely why I think Muslims today that hate Shia and call them kuffar, or Shia that hate Sunnah and call them kuffar, I think they're committing an enormous sin. We Muslims are commanded to go out of our way to find bridges so that we can come closer to one another. If we have differences, we can agree to disagree, but feel united as one people. The, 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 the fashion which is politically led by countries like Saudi and Emirat and so on, of to, the, to reach the point of saying, you hear people saying fighting the Shia takes priority over resisting Israel, Israeli occupation, to me is demonic. Simple, demonic. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. We began this century with something called Dawat al-Taqrib, where Shi'i jurists and Sunni jurists were flying back and forth, trying to have what we do interface discourse, interface uh, dialogue. We dialogue with Christians and Jews, but we won't dialogue with Shia and Sunnah. It's ridiculous. But at the beginning of the century, we had something called Dawat al-Taqrib, where Azhari sheikhs would fly to Iran and Iraq, and sheikhs from the Hausa would fly to Egypt, and they were... But, of course, politics completely destroyed it, and nothing remains of it. And then, Allah reminds us with the principle of Allah's Rahmah, that if you bring a hasana, Allah rewards you tenfold. But if you bring a sayyah, a sin, Allah punishes you simply for that. What by, you know, so that Allah is not out to get you. The point is this is not a vindictive God that is out to punish you. Allah, in fact, rewards you tenfold because Allah wants you to do what is good. And قُلْ إِنَّنِي هَدَانِي رَبِّي إِلَى صِرَاطٍ مُسْتَقِيمٍ And again, that this is the صِرَاطٍ مُسْتَقِيمٍ دِينًا قِيَمًا مِلَّةَ إِبْرَاهِيمَ حَنِيفًا 
This is the face, the moral past, the Sirat al Mustaqeen that goes back to the Prophet Ibrahim والسلام, as it goes back to the Prophet Moses. Then this most magnanimous verse, Qul inna salati wa nusiki wa mahyaya wa mamati lillahi rabbil alameen la sharika lah wa bithalika umird wa ana awwal muslimin This is the philosophical creed of any proper Muslim say my prayer my nusuk my worship my life my death lillahi rabbil alamin belongs to God I it's not just I worship God but I live and die with God no partners, no associates. And I am the first of Muslims. Your affirmation is to adopt the morality, the natural law of Islam, not because the majority does it. Not because the elite does it. Not because the jinn tell you to do it. Not because, but you adopt it as, a fair, as if you are the first of Muslims on the face of this earth. Time and again, the principle is that if you adopt this morality, then you understand that you live, you worship and you live and you die for a purpose and for a cause. And that cause is not to indulge or procreate, but you live as God's deputy and you return to Allah as Allah's ownership. And your attitude towards this morality is that you are as if the first of Muslims. And then Allah reminds us yet again of a moral principle that will become core for the development of Islamic ethics and Islamic law. No one bears the sins of another. And the principle is you can only be held accountable for what you do. As I said, it was a huge before, a huge advancement in our understanding of justice when we reached the point in human rights, in international legal theory, that collective punishments are unjust. 
collective responsibility is unjust. That when you punish someone, you only punish them for what they do, not what their parents do, not what their children do, not what their tribe does, not what... It, that was a huge advancement in justice. But people forget that it was the Quran that elucidated it first, long before Western philosophers said, well, after the Magna Carta, we reached that, you know, the point of that rule, because it became essential to the rule of law, it became essential to the whole point of criminal, legal, personal responsibility, but you can study Western legal theory and in the back of your mind you're saying centuries before the Quran said La And then you are here as khalaif, as viceroys, as agents on earth. And Allah gave different privileges, different, um, different privileges to some of you over others. But Allah didn't give these privileges as entitlements, but as a test. It is, doesn't mean, as the shiuch of authoritarianism say, well, you know, the rich, that's what Allah wants, and so they have to stay rich, and the poor, that's what Allah wants, so they have to stay poor. No. The differentiations in grants is the test to see will you be able to achieve justice, and achieve equity, and achieve mercy. Because that is what differentiates those who in fact fulfill the Surat al-Mustaqeem from those who fail in pursuing the Surat al-Mustaqeem. So now, Surat al-An'am was revealed. And as I said, it was introduced by Surat Hud, Surat Yunus, and Surat Yusuf. The themes led up to what Surat Al-An'am delivered, and it was a very heavy surah. Very heavy because it demanded that these folks who are persecuted and in an horrible state to turn away from not even curse their persecutors, not even provoke their persecutors. And what it reminded them of is that they have an ethical moral code, core, an ethical moral core. And that this ethical moral core is the same law of nature that every prophet was sent with 
from the get-go, from the very beginning, till the Prophet Muhammad. And that the society that they didn't know they're going to establish, but ultimately, they, this is a sort of an was understood once the Hijra took place, that the society will be accepted by Allah or not accepted by Allah according to the principles of justice and tarahum, meaning compassion and mercy. So when you read these stories about how when the Muhajireen reached the Medina and then the Ansar and the Muhajireen are offering each, you know, saying, oh, share my home, share my money, share my this, you know, the, that principle of tarahum, it was anchored in them in the Quran itself. And that although and this is also when the constant came to the constitution of Medina, that Surat Al-An'am, by rejecting the factionalism in moral allegiance, the Muhajirun and Ansar could not be two different political factions. They had different interests sometimes, but they were one people. The most critical thing for me in Surah Al-An'am is that it affirms that the laws that, that the laws of Ihsan the laws against the Fawahish, the laws against murder, the laws about speaking justly and testifying fairly, the laws of fairness and measurements and are laws encoded in nature. These are the natural laws that are intuitively and rationally recognizable. We anchor them, anchoring them in divinity, make them unwaverable. You cannot wave them away for political expedience or for convenience or because you have a powerful neighbor that wants this or that, so we've got to play politics or whatever. Okay, alhamdulillah. This is Surah al We're finished. You know, this is, um, it, it's in many ways, I was talking to Sheikh on the break, and, you know, this is obviously the longest surah I think we've covered, right? And very layered and challenging, and um, there's so much as we were going through it that is just so directly relevant to the challenges that we face in understanding how the world works, whether it's that, you know, everything from understanding that corruption starts with the elite and, you know, that things are set up. I mean, we see that in our world clearly um, about how everything is sort of um, arranged around power. Um, and I think that, in, especially in our time, it seems like things have been taken to the ultimate extreme. Um, and, you know, the, there's, there's so many different aspects for us to potentially ask you questions about, um, I don't know if we've given enough time for people to process, but um, 
You know, I for people who are newcomers, um, you know, what's very interesting is we, we've stated before that the sheikh preys on um, what surah to cover. And so this has happened pretty much from the beginning, I think, right? From even before we, we came to Ohio. So it's always fascinating to me, like, why did we get a particular surah and why was it given in the order that it was given? Um, and obviously, you know, it, it's, it's always so striking when we start learning and hearing something that is extremely relevant and building on different things. Um, and so I'm really curious, I mean, when, once we get through this project, because um, right now things happen so quickly at such a furious pace that it's hard to keep up. But when we, inshallah, inshallah, finish going through, we'll have a lot of opportunity to go back and like look at things like, okay, what was the order? Because it's really interesting, like, you know, how this, the sheikh will always start out with a particular surah and say, well, this was a mid-Meccan surah, this was a late-Meccan surah, it came right after this and right before that surah. But we will have an opportunity at some point to look at how we received the chapters, right? And it'll be very interesting to see, well, why did we start out with Surah Al-Hadid and then Jaffa? And then why was it that when we got to Ohio, we started at Tur and we started to do this, you know, and, and see like, what is it, like how was the knowledge built upon? Um, so that will be, you know, there, there'll be a lot of like very interesting research and stuff that we leave, you know, to the fellows and, and future to, to try and understand. But I think I, I wanted to share what's also very striking to me. You know, I, I've been in my weekly emails trying to sort of keep up with summarizing some of what we're learning here. But it struck me that, um, you know, when we, we've been talking about how we want to publish, um, you know, all of these proceedings and potentially start with a quick summary. So it's fascinating now to go back. This is the, the, this is the Quran that I reference. It's the Abdul Halim Quran, which I, I really like. And of course, I think every English translation has a little bit of a summary at the beginning of the chapter to tell you like what is this surah about. And so when Sheikh and I were talking just now, he was saying, you know, for me, this surah is about the, the you know, the natural law, the, the core moral, um, you know, like constitution, um, the message, you know, the core morality that came from the beginning of the prophets. I mean, it's the same message all throughout time. And so I thought it would be just sort of fascinating. I and mean, of course, there was so much more, but it's like, you know, we argue that every chapter here, or the, you know, the Sheikh's approach is that every single surah has a unique moral message. Um, so if this one, if it's fair to say this is about, you know, the core natural law of justice, um, that is the, the Quran. Let me just compare by reading you the, um, the summary in the Abdul Halim, just for comparison to see the distance, okay? Um, so it's called Livestock, a Meccan surah which takes its title from verses 136 to 139. The false claims the polytheists made about livestock are thoroughly addressed. The surah in its entirety makes plain that it is God who creates, controls, and sees everything and that it is to him that we turn in times of need. Thus it gives a lengthy refutation of the idolaters' claims. That's it. <laughs> I mean, oh, that could, I think, be said about every single chapter in the Quran. So my, um, I mean, it's just a, a, you know, interesting comparison and also I hope that, inshallah, when, when we publish um, all of the, you know, tafsir from, from Project Illumin, 
that each summary will be extremely powerful, extremely unique, um, and remind us of the journey that we've taken with each of the chapters here. So now we've done 60, which is really amazing. And just to add another bit of conversation we had earlier today, because um, you know, we talk about like traditional tafsir, we talk about the Sufi-esque tafsir, you know, obviously in the Islamic tradition, there was so much more um, production of knowledge earlier on, and now we've reached a point where production of, you know, I mean, tafsir, the, the, the last time an English language tafsir was published was 40 years ago, Muhammad Assad. So we've gone from this really rich, vibrant, you know, um, amazing civilization of production to, to this. But, you know, we forget, like, when we hear, okay, well, the traditional tafsir had this approach, and the Sufi-esque, you know, approach was this. Well, these were individual scholars that expressed their opinions through their tafsir. And the fact that they were individuals who were extremely learned, you know, and that there were more of them, doesn't undermine that this one tafsir that we are presenting now is the life work of a scholar, and it doesn't make it any less important. And in fact, if anything, we were you know, sort of debating about, or I, I was making the argument, and Sheikh was very patiently nodding his head or like trying to like, not listen to what I was saying. <laughs> I was trying to praise him, and he was trying to ignore me. Um, but the idea that you know, even like the way that knowledge has progressed and how you even um, you know, access um, information. You know, we were talking about how you know now we can ask Rami, Rami, look up something on Sheikh Google, or you know, do whatever you need to to look for a book, and we can find you know the the digital version of you know some obscure um, you know book and download it for you know quickly at our fingertips. I mean, that's something that didn't exist. You know, this is like kind of a new approach, even from when when Sheikh was doing his you know PhD dissertation, where it was like much more oriented towards books. But just but in comparison to how we access knowledge in our generation versus you know back when there were a lot more scholars who were very prolific and, and writing, but you know you just didn't have access to the amount of knowledge. So that obviously affects you know the the depth and the quality of the tafsir, and I think we really feel it. Um, in terms of how it applies to the challenges that we face in modern day and all the different um, you know, analogies to power or um, classism, racism, you know, even human trafficking, human rights issues and all of that. So um, just to say that you know, I, I feel so blessed um, that this is a time you know, where we have an opportunity to leave a, a mark um, you know, in, in the work that we're doing. Um, and that hopefully, even if we're the only new tafsir that comes out for another 40 years or who knows when, um, that it's important and that it's not any lesser because it just came after, you know, a much more vibrant um, Islamic intellectual heritage before. So that's, that's just my two cents about, like, you know, how awesome this is. So thank you to everyone. Um, so let's just start with them. What, what is there, uh, the girl that... And I should mention for new people, um, I always ask what is the dhikr for the surah, um, and usually what we understand is that part of unlocking kind of the, the deeper meaning of a surah is building the relationship with the Quran, but also that Sheikh would find a dhikr that he would pray on and, and you know, for long periods of time, which allows us to have some insight into these deeper meanings. So. It was 162 and 163. You know, the, uh, um, the Abdul Halim translation 
Abdul Halim. He's, uh, I think, he's a professor at Oxford. At Soas. Yeah, and he is, he's the son of um, an Azhari Sheikh. And he's a very, he's a very learned man. I mean, but, um, and that translation received an award from Saudi uh, he celebrated the Middle East. But look, and, and what he says is classically what you'd find in, in uh, the tradition, unfortunately. If you take so, most Muslims today and you tell them Surat al-An'am provides a thorough refutation of the Meccan claims about uh, cattle, why would they care? Surat al-An'am makes clear that Allah is the creator of everything. Well, doesn't every other surah make that clear? So the, the problem is that the modern approaches, which murder the soul of the Quran, it, they really communicate to you that the Quran has no relevance to anything in your life. Oh yeah, okay, Allah is saying, Allah is great, everything belongs to Allah, and arguing with the Meccans, which is 1400 years ago and entirely irrelevant to me. That, I don't think, and, and sadly, So many Muslims have just accepted that, that, that it's nearly impious to suggest that the Quran is saying anything more profound than that. Um, it's, it's quite unfortunate, and it's quite unfortunate because it's so... Um, widespread, and I mean, there, there are in, in circulation about 15 different translations of the Quran, and if you look at all of them, they all say the same thing. They, they pretty much, with the, with the possible exception of uh, Muhammad Asad, who doesn't say what I say, but he's definitely with a more sophisticated interlocutor of the Quran. Muhammad Asad's translation reflects a far greater sophistication than many of the translations that were published after Muhammad Asad. So thank you. Thank you from everyone who feels an immense amount of gratitude and can't come up and express it. But, um, Which is a very small group of people. <laughs> We don't know how big it is, so. This is basically we, we a handful of people. We don't know unless people let us know. So if anyone wants to let us know, um, then we, I, I promise we'll build a community, um, at least so that among the small people, small group of people, somehow we would feel connected to one another wherever you are. So. Um, because now we know from the halakas that, you know, it's, it's the minority that will yeah. 
make the difference, inshallah. So, monster. To the point, the verse on Dar es Salaam, I there there is I'm having a hard time wording this. There is some some things that that I felt was a bit problematic or can potentially be problematic in interpreting it because I mean, for instance, we're taking the metaphor of of cattle. There is a certain peace that comes from being amidst, being in a group of cattle, or being one of, of many. And I think oftentimes, I mean, is, I mean I'll, I'll use myself as an example, that when I really started to take this seriously and started focusing on my spiritual growth, there was this initial phase of what felt like chaos and what felt like my peace was being disturbed. And I learned, one of the, the first lessons that I learned was that there is a fundamental difference between comfort and complacency and serenity, on the other hand. And so, how, how do we distinguish that? Because, I mean, it's, if you're even thinking of the early Muslims that were receiving um, this lesson, they were being abused and being oppressed because of the message that they're, they're undergoing. So to be told that Islam is, is, is the, the abode of peace and if you, know, you step into a mosque and you're not feeling peace, then they, they weren't necessarily feeling much peace at this point in time. So how do we, how do we distinguish between the chaos that comes from confronting ourselves? Because oftentimes when we're confronting ourselves, where a lot of discomfort is coming up. Um, and the actual true peace of, of serenity and, and of Islam, because those, those two things seem very different. And it seems to me, I mean, especially in our society where you are gaining peace from a career and from, from material goods, and, and from all the things that our society says is, is what is going to give you peace. Um, how, how do you communicate that to people or, or distinguish that for people? Because it's, following this path, you're, you're basically saying goodbye to all of that. You're, you're, you're saying that no, I'm no longer going to take my sense of peace from that. And I think oftentimes people come and start going along this path and they're like, well, this is really difficult, this is really stressful. And don't realize, well, the stress is coming from the attachments to those things. Instead, they think, actually, the stress is coming from Islam and is coming from, from this other path, which is very difficult to follow and it's too, it's too burdensome. So, I mean, it, it feels like there's a, a level of, of nuance that is necessary when talking about what exactly is the peace that Islam gives you? Don't ask me to paraphrase this. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, I won't ask you to paraphrase it. Were you guys able to hear the question? Okay. Um, okay. When we say in Allah, that the it is a dawah, meaning it's a call for the ultimate objective is that, but to reach that, yeah, you do go through a great deal of turbulence and a great deal of hardship, but the the ultimate objective if you if you walk the the difficult path and you reach true faith the abode first the abode of salam is inside of you i mean that, that that's the the point where you have true faith that's uh, that. That's the overwhelming feeling that you have. Is that you, your relationship with Allah does give you a tranquility and a stability, and uh, you're not churning with um, resentments and anger or disappointments. It's, it's just your. Uh, you see the world in its proper perspective and your relationship with Allah does in fact sustain you. It, that's the one thing. But there's there's another level and and that is what Muslims were challenged. It's like saying the challenge for you is to create the abode, Darul Islam, and to make Darul Islam into Dar al Salam. Um, it doesn't mean that anything you create can can be automatically defined as such, and doesn't mean that it's easy. Uh, but that must always remain the goal. That is what you're working towards. The you know when when uh, you get the morality tales about when, in fact, Muslims were able to create something that they thought is a closer step towards the ideal of Dar es Salaam. If you study, for instance, the, the tradition of someone like Omar bin Abdul Aziz, the, the Amawi Khalifa, it, or descriptions of what constituted a true Islamic state at the time of the Prophet or the time of uh, the companions right after the Prophet, it, it is, it's like, setting an, an, an ideal to to fight for. Um, it is not, it doesn't mean that, it doesn't mean that um, it's not a call for complacency. It's not a call for uh, resignation to I mean, it, it, the, the worst thing is that you call something Dar es Salaam when in fact it's not. It's like uh, so many of the 
society is full of injustice and full of suffering and full of inequity and full of despotism and full of tyranny, they're the ones that, that often just co-opt, steal the language of the Quran and like, uh, like how many times in a country like Egypt, you know, they say, you know, enter Egypt in Amman. Well, no one has Amman in Egypt, unless you're very powerful and corrupt. Um, just because you, you steal the label doesn't make it so. It, it's an actually, it's a complete morocrity. Or when, you know, in, a city calls itself Dar es Salaam in this country or that country, that's not gonna. That's not what it is. Darasan is a is a valley, and it takes a great deal of work. And individually, it takes a great deal to to, to remake yourself, so that Darasan can exist inside. It takes a great deal of work as well, because. Um, The, you know, you can go around saying, I embrace Dar es Salaam as much as you want, but if your heart is full of anger and resentment and gripes and grievances and jealousy, and there is no Dar es Salaam, um, then you, you work towards cleansing all of that. And you have to look within before you look without. It's very easy to say, I don't have peace because of this person and that person and this person. You know, in other words, to blame everyone around you. Uh, but it takes, uh, but it's, it has to be inside. It, it's, it ha you have to look within first. And, and that's a challenge. Does that answer? Um, I'm wondering if I can add something too. And? Um, so, as, I think as a convert, like, um, you know, my, like, the best analogy that I would give, and which is not to say that, you know, I fully understand it, but in my own experience, like, if you try to articulate the feeling that comes, it's like when, when you're a little kid and something happens that upsets you and you know how you run to like your, your mother's arms or your father's arms or whoever, whoever represents <coughs> to you that sense of security and peace, you run to that person. But then when you become an adult and you recognize that your parents are just human beings like everyone else and they can't necessarily fix anything, but now you actually feel like you know, the chaos from the world and you go to prayer and you still, and it's almost like that same feeling of running to your mother's arms or your father's arms, but now it's, you're running to the arms of, of the one who actually, you don't even have to say because God saw everything and knows everything and knows how you feel and can comfort you that even though the world is completely chaotic, 
when you put your head down on the, you know, and in sujood, that you feel a peace in your heart because that feeling of security is coming from the one, your true mother, right? Your true whatever. And I've had moments like that, that those moments are what tell me this is where the Dar Salaam is. And that like, the and, you know, it's like it used to be fleeting. It used to be every, you know, once in a while. And I feel like over time on the path, it becomes more and more frequent. And that's how I understand if I'm going in the right direction or not. And getting a glimpse of that ultimate peace. That to me is what I understand is the goal. Does anyone else have a question? Oh. <laughs> Jordan, I know you, uh, you're, Sophia said you did, so I'm gonna <laughs> invite you. Um, wanted to see if you could talk a little bit more about the minority sort of upholding kind of the ethical core with the paradox of democracy and that being the rule of the majority. Mm. How do they sort of play and is there sort of just always a group that has to kind of maintain some sort of ethical core or can that expand and scale over time? Can you paraphrase that? A little bit. Just for people who might not have heard. The the question is, well, uh, since it's a minority that that owes the use of the ethical core, the the question of democracy. um, Democracy is a a a. a procedural issue, meaning that it, it is a way that we try to avoid the opposite of democracy. It, it, it's a way that we try to avoid the excesses of authoritarianism and despotism. There is no way that we human beings have figured out figured that out that we can put government or governance in the hands of the moral minority and get it to work. Because human experience has shown that the minute people enjoy power, it corrupts them. And, um, it, and it, power has just proven to be corrupting influence, always. And so, d- democracy is, it, it's, it's a procedural mechanism, a number of procedural mechanisms by which we try to avoid the evils of despotism and what results from despotism, which is secrecy, corruption, lack of accountability, and so on. But can the majority be trusted to do what is moral? No, it can't. Uh, and in fact, the, the role of the minority is to play the role that the prophet and the prophets have played. And that is, as those who 
play the role of reminders, to constantly remind the majority of the moral and ethical core. I think that constitutionalism, the very idea of constitutionalism, the constitutional democracy, um, in theory, of course it doesn't work that way in the US because the, the Supreme Court is always staffed by uh, whoever holds power and the whole, you know, it needs to be uh, reformed. But the whole notion of constitutionalism is to get a body that can restrain the majority when the majority uh, wants to do something immoral or something that is against these core ethics. So, you know, when uh, the majority, for whatever reason, starts giving privileges to corporations that allow them to maintain monopolies, a, a, a proper constitutional system would at least would would play that role on saying that no, there are basic principles that are unwavering, and uh, even the majority cannot simply ignore it. Um, we haven't figured out a way to prevent the corruptions of power, other than to not allow people to to stay in power. <clears throat> indefinitely and that that's the whole not notion is that whoever is in power must not be allowed to remain in power beyond a specific set of terms i think this is like in the united states one of the greatest corrupting influence influences upon uh democracy are career bureaucrats who, because they're career bureaucrats, because they've been in the same position for 20, 30 years, uh, are able to create their own set of corporate interests that, and there is no way to, to dislodge them from their positions. And a proper working democracy would all these sensitive positions that can subvert uh, um, a fair distribution of power uh, would not be allowed to just be held indefinitely. Like for instance, you know, people in the Pentagon that make decisions that, that influence the entire country and in the same position for 30 years uh, there should be time, uh, there should be limits on on how long people can hold these types of positions so that they don't develop these vested interests that are that, that be, end up serving nothing but their own you know their their own set of interests that they become vested in um, but this is the th this is the remarkable thing is that Although Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows and warns us that the majority will not listen. And uh, people, will, but consistently Allah makes the rule of non-coercion 
an ethical, moral, Islamic principle. You cannot coerce people to do what's right. You can only, which, I mean, one of the remarkable things about Islamic civilization, like I was recently reading something about Imam Jilani. Um, Imam Jilani, who, uh, you know, first ends up in, in Baghdad, uh, he was destitute, extremely poor, had absolutely nothing to his name, uh, worked a number of jobs as uh, as a carrier in the market, as a cleaner, as as he was attending school in Baghdad. Eventually, he proves himself uh, as as a, a scholar that when his teacher dies, he inherits his teacher's chair. But what struck me about the story is that the law school that Imam Jilani started out with and took the post in was initially a law school that accommodated about 30 students. But as his reputation spread, the people who built the law school from a law school that could accommodate 30 people to a law school that could accommodate 500 students at mm -hmm. one time, it was the rich people of Baghdad, it wasn't the government of Baghdad. It was the wealthy of Baghdad that donated the money. And that's, that's a sign of a, of a healthy, lively society. That it is the powerful and rich in society feel for whatever reason, they, they feel like they are morally obligated to support what, you know, that minority. They, they can't be a Jilani, they can't study with Jilani, but they can give the money to support those who want to study with Jilani. Um, and, and that cannot be created unless those rich people feel that the only way they gain the respect of their society is by supporting something like that. So it, it, is, it is the people that created that, that they feel that their stature is defined by where they spend their money. And if they didn't spend the money to support students of scholars, then people, regardless of their wealth, would look down at them. That's that. That's that's a dynamic where you, at the same time, maintain the pr principle of non-coercion, but you have moral progress. And look at look at the production of some of Jilani. I mean, the amount of scholarship he produced was was is astounding. Um, in 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 democratic <clears throat> theory, we call it a lively civic society, right? I mean, so effectively, what what can sustain Idar al-Salam is a lively civic society, not a society that effectively becomes brain dead and doesn't do anything unless the state tells it to do it. Today, 
Do you know that most rich people will not donate to any Islamic cause because today rich people are terrified of donating to any Islamic cause that turns out to be Muslim Brotherhood or, you know, so they get into trouble with their government. So all, the, all rich people are very suspicious of all Islamic causes. That's such a, a symptom of a, of a severely diseased society and a severely diseased people. They, 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 cannot, they cannot even support. So it's basically they left the abandoned religion to the government. It's like, the only one who says what goes on Islamically, whether uh, who gets to speak for Islam, who gets to teach, who gets it, it's a government. And the government is severely corrupt and severely authoritarian. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. You know, that's the attitude that you get from wealthy Muslims all over the world. They are just, no, no, it's safer just let the governments worry about it. And the consequences is what we're living. It's just disastrous, absolutely disastrous. <coughs> More questions before we go to the interactive group? Okay. All right, so this is from Huda. Um, truly amazing halakha, Jazakallah khair. Around Ayat 61, you mentioned that humans are always presented with celestial beings, meaning angels. Does this mean that even when people commit wrong, there are still angels around them pointing to God's constant grace and mercy? It seems that God's mercy is emphasized in this chapter more than in any other chapter. Um, not, in, God, not in more than any other chapter because um, we'll get there. I mean, we're, well, how many surahs have we done? 60. Okay, yeah. So we still have a ways to go, but um, God's mercy is emphasized in Surah Al-An'am because it is part of God's natural law. It, it put it very bluntly, is that if you try to conceive of natural law and somehow want to leave mercy out of the equation, Surah Al-Anam will tell you, then that's not God's natural law. Any, and, and, and this is where, if you look at, I was uh, just recently, I was showing some uh, students some of the uh, poetry and songs that emerged in natural native Muslim cultures, songs that go back to pre-colonialism. And these are songs that were you know, inherited from, from one group or another over centuries. And when you look at these songs that were, that, that effectively, the start of Mawawil and Tawashih and so on, is what spread Islam 
to you know to China, to Africa, to Indonesia, to Malaysia. When you look at the themes, and you find remarkably they innately and, and, and naturally express what I've referred to as the natural law and so on and on. All these 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 um, uh, songs that came out of native Muslim culture emphasize God's mercy, emphasize God's lotf, emphasize uh, God's compassion in everything. Everything that they talk about is how to be compassionate, how to be merciful, how... And so, I think Muslims got the message. The, the, the Islam that spread before modernity was an Islam that preached a fundamentally immersive message, and it was the you know the whole thing that many of us grew up with, but lost all sense of its meaning, is Muhammad Rasulullah Rahmah. Why is Muhammad the prophet of mercy? If you ask, if you bring modern Muslims today, and I'm willing to to, to bet anything, you bring a group of modern Muslims from all over the Muslim world, in their 20s, and tell them, tell me, why is Muhammad known as Rasulullah Rahmah, the Prophet of Mercy? I am willing to bet anything they wouldn't be able to answer you. From, and I think this holds from, you know, bring kids from Morocco to Saudi, to Egypt, to Indonesia, to Malaysia, and it is truly, that means that we are raising our children the wrong way. Because if you go back 200 years, every kid raised in Islam knew why Muhammad was Rasulullah. That was the, the way that Islam was taught to them, is you couldn't separate mercy from Muhammad. They're, they're interlinked. And that's why to love Muhammad, then you have to love mercy. And to follow the Sunnah of the Prophet means you, had it, you have to be merciful. All of that was lost. When the Sunnah of the Prophet became about what you wear and how you appear, the cosmetics, when our fulfillment of Islamicity became whether women are properly covered or not properly covered. Rather than the, the, the uh, that, that's when the, the and, and I think it is the, it's directly attributable to colonialism and post-colonial post globalization and the hegemonic influence of Western civilization. There's no question about it. The other thing is that are the, the are Hafiza angels there? A, the, the, there is a um, in which is probably the, the the text that I know of that talks about this the most. Uh, that yes, till the point that you commit sin, uh, the angelic presence is around you trying to dissuade you from committing it. There is a hadith that once the sin is committed, then they, then they depart as long as the sin is occurring. 
but return after the sin. So there is a hadith, etc. Um, but we ignore the, the, the angelic presences that in our lives because the more beauty we internalize and the more beauty we produce, the more we become like magnets for the angelic presence in our life. And the more ugliness we are, we, 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 are we, we, we internalize, and the more ugliness we produce, the more we chase away the angelic and draw in the demonic. I often compare the demonic towards like, like um, the way, you know, rot attracts flies. They, they, they are attracted to the to the to evil and to sin, um, and often they, you know, they make themselves completely at home. Uh, the more sin you commit, the more at home they feel. And they do have a, a, a serious influence. I mean, we, we, the modern mind again has tried to exclude everything that is supernatural or what we call supernatural, but it's actually not supernatural at all. It's just natural. Um, but it is, it is all true, both the demonic and the angelic. Okay, this is from Brian in Egypt. Assalamu alaikum, my apologies if, if this was covered um, and I missed it. In Ayah 47, the Sheikh spoke about the ideals of truth prevailing over time and the ideals of falsehood vanishing over time. This reminds me of something the Sheikh wrote about in Reasoning with God, the idea of moral progress. Yeah. How do we understand this idea in relation to the moral examples of the companions and the early generations and the hadith that praise them as the best of generations? Thank you so much for an amazing series of halakas. It was truly beautiful. Yeah, you know, the, um, a lot, uh, and, I'm, and I'm going to, I'm sure, um, there's a lot of hadiths that talk about the best of generations was mine, and basically there's a, then each generation is worse after that. There are two things. The Prophet praised that generation because the companions were the living embodied embodiment of the teachings of the prophets and to anchor them as authoritative figures so that we study them and we derive moral lessons from them. But there is a political component to uh, these ahadith that we have to be aware of. And that is when the, the, the extreme political, extremely, uh, how to put it, when Imam Ali confronted the rebellion and the events that led to the martyrhood of Al-Hussein, there was a a um, 
a cultural shock for Muslims. The empire that was being built, first the Amalid and then the Abbasid, uh, seemed so far away from the ideals that <clears throat> Islam started out with. And so many of the hadith and versions of the hadith express moral disapprovement of the of the Amawiyin and the Abbasids and the Abbasiyun um, by underscoring that you've betrayed the originals. So there is an authentic component to these hadith an authentic core to it, which basically tells us to turn our gaze to studying the generation of the Prophet ﷺ for inspiration in law, inspiration in morality, inspiration in ethics. But there is a political component that we have to be aware of, and that there was the element of uh, intelligently criticizing what so many of the muhaddithun saw as the corruptions of, uh, uh, that was brought in by the Amawiyun uh, in the form of a hadith. And so the, the response is that when we this the, the the fact that we are told to learn from the moral examples of the companions if you look at the moral examples of what in fact they sought um, <clears throat> many of the principles that they embodied where, how do I put it, um, in terms of their objective and purpose, were far more achievable in later generations. So for instance, which is the greater fulfillment of mercy? The amount of violence that was perpetuated in the medieval world, violence much of which we did not hear of because we didn't have methods of keeping track of people, or the human progression to the point of understanding that, for instance, there is something like child abuse and that child abuse exists in so Child abuse is completely missing in, in so many of the pre-modern discourses. But which is closer to Allah's call for compassion and mercy? The medieval paradigm where a child belonged to the parent and the parents can do with the child whatever they wish, or our modern tendency or a modern paradigm shift of saying, if you abuse your child, that's not excused even if the parent, even if you're a parent. 
in the modern age, um, women's sense of autonomy over their bodies, their, their, their understanding of their right to say yes and no uh, about how their bodies are used. It's a, it's a very modern phenomenon. In the pre-modern world, um, we can't kid ourselves. There were a few exceptional women that would uh, had, uh, but for the most part, the idea of a woman saying, I don't want my body used by my husband whenever my husband wishes, was completely alien. In my view, it is closer to the principle of non-coercion when women get to the point with enough body awareness to say, no, I, I'm, I'm not going to engage in sex unless I want it. Um, so, it is, we, we gaze backwards for our ethical compass, but we understand that in Allah it told us the truth when he, when he said ultimately it is those who are more just, those who are more merciful, those who are more compassionate that will be given victory over those who are more cruel, over those who are more unjust, or over those who are more corrupt. And I think human history is the bigger, biggest testament to that. Um, I mean, if only Muslims would understand that they are the ones that should be heading the world on the fronts, on these fronts that were anchored by the religion in them. How could it be that people talk about human rights as a Christian principle? How could we accept that the, the fairest people in the world that invented the idea of hukuk al-ibad, the, the rights of human beings, and uh, the rights of human beings are so sacrosanct that they take precedence over the rights of God. How could it be that then Judeo-Christian is what is said to be the Judeo-Christian civilization is the one that comes up with the concept of human rights and that torture is the inviolability or that torture is always wrong. It just blows my mind. Prohibition of torture is moral progress. But it is moral progress that if we studied our tradition correctly and sufficiently, was flagged for us as a goal to reach by the generation of the Prophet It's just that we, we didn't want to listen. We, we were taught very early on what Allah does with that when you nas, but we continue to ignore the, the the moral value in the prohibition against torture until it became attributed to the Judeo-Christian civilization. 
which to me is just offensive, because those who know the, the, the type of torture and cruelty that the Judeo-Christian civilization produced, uh, it, it, it blows your mind. It blows your mind that, to the point that, you know, you get someone like Samuel Huntington today thinks that, well, you know, Muslim cultures, that's their culture. They, they, they don't mind torturing people. I was just talking to, just um, recently in my public international law class, this ex-military guy was talking about how, oh, you know, we shouldn't hate Muslims because, you know, all our black sites where we tortured people, they were in Muslim countries. And Muslims were always very eager to torture for us whoever we asked them to torture. And, and unfortunately, he, he was, I mean, I, I, he's excellent, and unfortunately, I knew that what he's saying is right. But, you know, as a Muslim, it killed me. You know, we, oh, we, we, we create our black sites in Muslim countries because Muslims will always be happy to torture fellow Muslims for us. How is that? You know, no, the moral progress is that we get the lessons of the Qur'an and the Sunnah of the proper understanding of the Sunnah of the Qur'an. When, I, I won't name him because I, I, I know that the people listening to me, like Brian will know who I'm talking about. But uh, someone of very high-ranking uh, religious figure in Egypt, very high-ranking, someone who is supposed to be an authority on everything Islamic, just very casually says, oh, well, you know, um, when he disagrees with someone, let Amnidawla take him and Irabu, you know, to uh, discipline him for, for six months. He's talking about, you know, let, let, let Amnidawla take this person and torture him for six months and then he, he learned some manners. This is, this is supposed to be someone who uh, speaks for God in a country like Egypt. Is that closer to Allah? Or, or someone who says, you can't do, do this to human beings. You can't torture someone for six months just because they don't want the president to serve a third term or whatever. It's amazing. I mean, it, it's, it, um, That's not a very happy place to end the Halakha. Okay, well, <laughs> find something happy to end because it's, yeah. uh, Someone ask a happy question. Well, we're done. Uh, sorry. Okay, is it short? Because yeah, we're, we're really out of time, but we need, we need, can't end on that. So, it's happy, right? Yes. Bring some cheer. Sure. <laughs> okay. Um, my short question is, um, when when the discourse about the Zuhruf begins, yeah. and then it goes for a few verses, you spoke about how, and and then it went into like the the right the conceptions of right being rightly guided, and not necessarily following the group herd mentality and this sort of thing, and then suddenly it comes upon eat that of which Allah's name is, you know, mm -hmm. mentioned, and then just prior to that verse, you were speaking about your criteria for when you're 
ingesting academic information, you always have your own principles that you're like, okay, well, mm -hmm. does this follow, you know, that or not? My question is, in that reading, with, with that understanding, when it's saying, so eat that of which Allah's name is what, over mm -hmm. it, is it, is this limited specifically only to food in this context? Or is it essentially saying, take only that of which you're applying to God-conscious principles? You know, when you're receiving new information, receive it through your lens of God-consciousness. That's a good point, because I believe it's a second. I mean, the reason it follows at this point is because it, it, even when it comes to Zuhra Fuqaw, the only thing that will save you is God consciousness. It, it's, you know, yeah, I can, you know, I read Foucault and it's sort of fun to read his entire discourse about prisons. It's very long, it's three volumes. It's a, I found it a thrilling read. But then at the end, you step back and you say, wait, is this consistent with a world that begins with Bismillah? If it, if I, if it's, if I can't answer in the affirmative, then regardless of how much I enjoy the reading, I have to, I have to drop everything that is inconsistent with an existence premised on Bismillah, be Bismillah, in the name of Allah, and it, this. So many of our intellectuals, by the way, they, they jump on Western theorists. This is like in Sartre in the 60s. So many Muslims were going around Sartre, this, Sartre, that, Sartre, this, the whole philosophy of existentialism. While the whole philosophy of existentialism is inconsistent with Bismillah. How can you be an existentialist if, if, you, if you accept a life premised on Bismillah? And it blows your mind because I don't know if out of ignorance or out of, you know, people try to make what doesn't go together, go together. Um, and th this, so many Muslim intellectuals, so many Muslim students who study, you know, they, uh, they end up losing their way because they first think that, oh no, you know, I'll, I'll be fine, I'll read this and I'll read that and I'll make it all, but they ultimately can't make it jive and because they're not firmly anchored in principles of Bismillah. Uh, next thing you know, then they, they start applying these theories that effectively gut Islam of its truth. And I, you know, I, I, I sound very old fashioned or, you know, or like a broken record. I wish I could take so many graduate students, so many Muslim graduate students, and like, shake them into, shake some common sense into them. Because they, 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 you can see them as they're going down to this path. And you wish you could tell them anything that you, that's going to sound fancy and cool. It sounds very intelligent and, you know, other people can't understand it, so it attracts you and, has all the, you know, Princeton, Harvard, Stanford, blah, 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 Yale, names on it. it if it takes you away from the core, then you have to know it's a fallacy. It cannot be true.
You have to figure out why not, why it's not true, but it cannot be true. That's the intellectual challenge. Okay, that's a much better place to end. <laughs> Thank you, Cheyenne. <laughs> okay, so I think we haven't quite figured out if we're going to have another Helicon Tuesday yet, so we'll figure that out. Um, so, inshallah, we will hopefully see you either Tuesday or Saturday. Inshallah. Inshallah. So, everybody have a wonderful week, and we'll see you soon. Take care. Assalamu alaikum.